Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we are here to discuss um, possibly the beginning of a, a new series, a sub-series if you will, of fucked up family films from the 1980s. Um, because my gosh, are there not a bunch of them? Uh, it seemed like the nineties, they kind of got everything under control. We started getting those home alones, right? Where it's a little bit scary, but we're really pushing into the very safe, very Christopher Columbus, warm, amber glow of, of, of righteousness that came along with the, the nineties, the tipper gore, the, uh, the adequate warning labels on, salacious materials but uh, man the 1980s was a wild west and it produced all kinds of incredibly strange and incredibly damaging <laughs> family films quote-unquote family films uh and which the, we know all about being generation xers and, and a millennial respectively yeah we, um, we saw them all mm -hmm. yeah sometimes in the theater not, not with this one but this but one, oftentimes though. Nobody saw this one in the theater. Um, <laughs> and the movie, of course, is Little Monsters. The film that I guess was supposed to make Howie Mandel a, a film star. It, it didn't work. Uh, but we needed our deal or no deal for that to happen. <laughs> that's right. Uh, he needed to become a game show host. That was his destiny. But we do get some prime time, perfect 13-year-old Fred Savage action. Um, this is is an interesting family film, if you want to call it that. It has an incredibly dark premise that really kind of gets backgrounded as the film goes on. You can tell somebody at the back end was going, hmm, this might be a little bit too scary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the premise itself would actually be revisited about 13 years later by Pete Docter and Pixar with Monsters Incorporated, uh, which is the same basic plot, which is where do the things that go bump in the night come from and what are they trying to do? Now, obviously, Monsters, Inc. takes it in a very kind of fun and lighthearted direction. We're harvesting screams for energy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a look at our energy crisis, right? And this then they one, go full heartwarming, which do. this movie yeah. does not... Uh, does not it's not successful in, no. in heartwarming. No, it's it swings for it at the end and gets pretty close, mm -hmm. mostly because Fred Savage emotes very well on screen. Um, but it, it never really gets to that place. It's got a much more vicious heart behind it. Um, and that gives it a, a little kick in a different direction. So uh, if you've never seen it before, we'll, we'll briefly sort of cover what Little Monsters is about. And then if you're interested in seeing it, it is streaming on Netflix as of November of uh, 2020 when this is being recorded. Uh, it has also just recently, as in September, I think, been released on Blu-ray for the first time, uh, which can generally be found very inexpensively for reasons that will likely become clear as we discuss. Uh, but it is available, shockingly enough. It hasn't really been released on home video since the early 2000s when it got a DVD release that is now very difficult to find. Um, but uh, the holding company for this, which is now part of Lionsgate Cinema, uh, Vestron Video, which if you are a, a 
constant purveyor of 1980s film, especially the home video market of film, uh, you know the name Vestron. Uh, Vestron was started by a former HBO executive who purchased, I'm not kidding here, he purchased the rights to the Time Life Video Library. And he used that library to launch his own home video company that he called Vestron, which was a play on a couple of Greek gods, uh, or play on the Greek goddess Vesta and uh, the word Tron, which was Greek for instrument or tool. And, and so he, he assembled Vestron into a thing and then began rapidly purchasing just home video distribution rights. Many, uh, this is another thing in the 1980s, most of the major film studios like 20th Century Fox, they didn't have a home video production arm, right? They were only cinematic and theater film distribution companies. They didn't so know. It's a great example in, in future technology clauses. Of, you know, just because something doesn't exist yet doesn't mean that it won't exist. So you should probably get in on you the ground get in floor. On it. And, uh, and they didn't. They were unprepared for the explosion of home video. And so Vestron became very rapidly a company that was pursuing uh, home video rights wherever they could get them. Uh, and basically they stumbled into success. They secured international video rights for a couple of big films uh, in the 1980s, uh, like The Princess Bride, which is where the, the Fred Savage connection uh, comes in. But uh, then eventually got into their own film producing arm, which uh, their major success, their only real big success was Dirty Dancing. Uh, which of course was a very big success. Oh. Uh, exactly, yes. It you know the, the film that launched a thousand Patrick Swayze's, and, and we're all better for it. Oh, I, I certainly don't regret it. But in any case, Vestron uh, pretty much lasted just through the 1980s. It lasted from like 81 to 89, maybe a little into 1990, uh, and fell into bankruptcy. And this film was part of that bankruptcy procedure. And uh, its rights were handed off to MGM uh, and then now in the hands of Lionsgate after several additional changes through United Artists and all this other stuff. Um, so this film was produced in, in 87, from what I understand. Uh, 87, maybe the summer of 88, somewhere around in there. Um, so one of the things that we'll talk about a bunch as we go through this is this film gets sort of constantly referenced in the Beetlejuice discussion. Uh, Beetlejuice, of course, Tim Burton's classic had come out the year before, had made a huge splash um, because it's excellent um, and, and a great movie for, in a bunch of different ways. And uh, this is in some ways trying to capture that vibe and failing in a lot of ways. So it gets a lot of like, you know, low rent Beetlejuice comparisons and it's not totally wrong but they were basically produced around the same time so they they weren't necessarily feeding off of each other in the way i think a lot of people expect but it certainly has that that quality to it uh so the premise is fairly straightforward um where do the monsters under your bed come from uh, and what do they get up to while the world of humans are asleep Apparently not as much as you'd think. <laughs> no, it seems pretty dull. Um, a little bit of feasting, a little bit of breaking, um, hanging out around a lot of pallets. Um, they do a lot of shipping down there. They've got a lot of pallets laying around. But uh, the the film stars a uh, 
fairly well established by this point, Howie Mandel. Uh, Mandel had had a successful TV series under his belt, several successful comedy tours, uh, some deals with HBO. Um, and this was right before, this was probably like either right before development started or, or through development of the cartoon, right? Yes, he would, throughout the 90s, he would shift into his own projects. He started working on uh, the cartoon adaptation of one of his famous stand-up characters, Bobby, into the Bobby's World TV show. Um, which was was marginally successful on the Fox Kids block, I believe, or, or several syndicated. Popular with me, I loved it. Uh, yeah, no, I did too. Uh, one of my go-to comedic gags to make my family laugh when I was a kid was doing Bobby's voice, uh, which now hurts tremendously for me to do. But uh, I, I could only ever do good. the Louis Anderson as a child voice, yeah, so I didn't have quite the same success. Little Louis, right? <laughs> But uh, yes, indeed, uh, he he was uh, shifting very much his career into his own projects at this point. Um, I did watch some of the behind the scenes on the Blu-ray, and he apparently had an extremely miserable time in this film. Uh, as it's well known at this point, Howie Mandel uh, has OCD, which primarily... Extreme. Uh, extreme OCD, exactly. We should, I guess, preface it with that. Uh, but his manifestation of OCD is primarily in the form of... Uh, it's not really germophobia, germophobia, miscophobia. He, he is afraid of, of uncleanliness and the transmission of invisible germs. And uh, that was very much present at this time in his career, but it was not publicized and it was not something that he spoke about. But I mean, the, his, his now, I guess, iconic uh, latex glove over the head joke came apparently from one of his very first stand-up outings because he always had a latex glove in his pocket for opening doors. And um, one of his friends challenged him to go up on an improv night and perform. He didn't have anything prepared. He sort of stumbled around, fumbled around, found the glove in his pocket, didn't know what to do, put it over his head, blew it up with his nose, and a comedy career was born. Um, so his his OCD and anxiety about those issues has always sort of been innately tied to what he does. And I, I I'll preface you know because I'll probably bring it up in the in the rest of the the episode. But I also suffer from pretty extreme obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a little bit different. I don't have the germ component to the extreme that he does. But his comedy about his disorder and and the comedy that's born of the disorder is some of his best work. And it's my favorite Howie Mandel um, comedy to engage with. Um, but I will say I saw him struggling in this movie mm -hmm. um, because I, I have known that about him for such a long time. I think I actually learned that somewhere in my youth when I was watching the cartoon. <clears throat> you know, you see interviews and things. But uh, that's always been a hugely appealing thing about his comedy is that he it's it's something I identify with. But I could see in this movie that this this would have been so uncomfortable for him to make. Yes, um, he was capable of, uh, I think he said, turning it on for when the camera was on. But the moment that the camera wasn't rolling, he was deeply uncomfortable. They filmed it in uh, North Carolina in the summer. So... I mean, heat and latex never go hand in hand. Uh, he, mm. he talked pretty extensively about the discomfort that he felt. 
and and then the nature of, of applying the makeup having people touch his face and head <laughs> for three to four hours every morning to put him into the makeup and then an hour to take it off and how difficult and, and, and really, really painful it was for him to go through. And which he said, you know, he, at that point in his career, he was, he was basically saying yes to everything. If somebody asked, he said yes. And that may, oh, he, you know, his basic sense was that opened a lot of doors for me and it gave me a lot of opportunities, but there are a lot of things now knowing what I know both about projects and about myself, I would say no. And he said, I probably would have said no to this if I had had really any understanding of what it was going to be like. And that's a tough place for an actor to be. You know, you look at a role that was pivotal in your success and then you kind of wish you hadn't done it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a hugely challenging enterprise to, to look back on your career and, and wonder, you know, would I have even done this in the first place? So... It's, it's a fascinating project. Um, we'll get into some more of the specifics as we delve in, but uh, it is, if it sounds interesting and you would like to know about it, then as we typically advise, I would say probably pause now, go check out the film. Uh, and even if you don't watch the entirety of it, sort of get a feel for its overall quality and then, you know, come back and, and we'll sort of you know, head through it like we normally do. But uh, I guess we should talk about the failure, which for this one was fairly total. Uh, as, as with many films that are caught in the midst of a, a studio changeover, you know, without a champion behind a film, you know, somebody at the producing company who's saying this is going to be great. A lot of movies get mired in, you know, sort of studio uh, back and forth. And that's kind of what happened here. Vestron failed right as the film was wrapping up. The studio that bought Vestron's controlling stake in the film project really didn't have an interest in releasing it, um, didn't see a value in it, and so they didn't. Uh, this film had a budget of about $7 million, which was not extreme. It was very, uh, pretty low, even for 1989, and a film of this type, but they only released it in about 120 theaters um, nationwide. And it pulled in close to $800,000 in those theaters. It's possible that they were kind of, you know, because of the success of Beetlejuice, they were kind of feeling the market, seeing if it would hit well enough in those theaters and then maybe go wider. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, so really nobody saw this. And that presented a challenge for me as I was preparing for the episode because no one reviewed it anywhere that I can find. Uh, I imagine there were some local reviews, but as far as like your big national reviewers that tend to be part of, you know, databases that are easily accessible, I, I couldn't find hardly anything. All of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are current. They are people who have gone back and looked at it within the last five to six years and uh, generally were pretty down on it. It's got like a 44% of those reviews, but there are only nine of them. So it is, it is not indicative of, of much of anything. There are quite a few user reviews, close to 50,000. So a lot of people have seen this in terms of, you know, Rotten Tomato user scores. And they rated it pretty highly, about 65%. So, you know, in the popcorn range, but not certified fresh. But what I decided to do instead was to look at the Google reviews of little Mouse. oh god <laughs> so i've only picked a couple because we only need to pick a couple but i'm going to share them with you now um 
this is like this is like trolling through Yahoo Answers. That's what this is. Um, it's interesting. Most of these are recent, within a year, and uh, I'm guessing it's people who found the film once it made its way to Netflix, which it's been there for quite a while. Um, I can't imagine being able to find this. Uh, it probably, I mean, I'm sure it airs on TV occasionally. You know, this would this would be pretty good fodder for, you know, a movie channel, but. Uh, so I, I'm not going to call these individuals out by name. I hope that's okay. But this is a one-star review. I wish I could give this movie zero stars. But <laughs> sadly, I can't. The underlying story here is about a pedophile, pedophile spelled incorrectly, taking advantage of children from broken homes. And once they've been used and abused, the boy gets a new child to prey on. I watched this with my son thinking it would be innocent and fun, and I was mortified. Luckily, he's only five and can't understand the actual story being played out, but it's disturbing. Hmm. It's an interesting point. Uh, again, I think there are, there are some dark undertones to this film that don't really get fully explored. Uh, so I, I can kind of see where this individual is coming from. I, I don't think the intent of the the filmmakers was to address pedophilia but hey let's let's keep it on the table right we'll bring that one back up uh here's a, a more positive one i love this movie wound up working with kids as an adult 16 years now and still the best kids movie i like to think it's because of this movie i'm always three steps ahead lol 35 years old just bought it on youtube it's still the best i had a peanut butter and onion sandwich two nights ago and it felt like i had gone to heaven Ew. <laughs> the peanut butter and onion sandwich was one of the most offensive parts. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll cover that here in a sec. But uh, Fred Savage's character is a quirk, I guess an interesting trait. Enjoys peanut butter and onion sandwiches as a midnight snack while his parents are not paying attention. Uh, again, very, it's one of those like, that's suspiciously specific. Right to the point that I'm guessing one of the writers loves it's, peanut butter and onion sandwiches and needed it to. It reminded wing that me. One in there. It reminded me of Harriet the Spy and her tomato mm -hmm. sandwiches. It's kind sure. of strange. Yeah, it's it's uh, character building through quirk. Yeah. Right? Uh, which I guess we can go ahead and mention the writers of this film mm -hmm. are uh, Ted Elliott and Terry. Rossio. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that uh, you know what else they've done. Um, I do. <laughs> um, uh, the Aladdin is a big one. It's um, one of the biggies, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I, especially since it was the very next film. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, this um, is, this, the people who wrote Aladdin, this is their first produced screenplay and and you know this it's actually a perfect comparison and and not to pick on howie mandel because I, I am I, I do think he's a really funny person mm -hmm. this is a testament to robin williams as a comedian i mean of course he was a legend of course he was a national treasure what's your problem if you don't like robin williams mm -hmm. um but especially at this time in the 1980s Right. It's is, the same kind of rapid fire, you know, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks sort of comedy. 
where it's very referential. It's pulling in, you know, an entire history of jokes, an entire history of comedic writing. And it's also pulling in, you know, impersonation and Howie Mandel and Robin Williams are, they have a lot in common in terms of style. And so it's interesting that those are the leads in those two pictures that these two guys worked on. And one is so successful. Aladdin was so successful. Perfect mm -hmm. film. And Little Monsters is not. Yes. And I, I feel like it's Robin Williams. You know, I've, I've done, I've read a lot into the history of Aladdin because I'm a big Disney geek. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there's a lot of good material out there, a lot of good articles and essays. Um, actually, <laughs> to make short work of it, just go watch Lindsay Ellis's video on Aladdin and Robin Williams, and it, it'll tell you everything you need to know. Mm -hmm. But it's it's kind of the perfect way to look at these two writers and how they did they did get it right, but it's almost like the interpretation was up to vastly differing talents, I guess. Similar style, but really different talents. Right. And that, that was interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so Ted Elliott and Terry Rossi have been in Hollywood for a long time. This is their first screenplay, right? So this was their, their launch pad. But they go on to write Aladdin basically the next it wasn't the next year but that's their next project they were probably working on it pretty much as soon as little monsters finished so they do aladdin aladdin obviously opens all kinds of doors but let's look at some other films that are here and then Shrek. one that will be very very obvious right these guys wrote the original draft not the shooting draft that was that was handled when joe dante took the project over but the original concept for Small Soldiers. Fantastic movie. They had the screenplay and story for The Mask of Zorro. Ted Elliott, not both of them, just Ted Elliott by himself, wrote the original Shrek. Which is the best. Doesn't get any better than Shrek. <laughs> they did the adaptation for Treasure Planet, which is one of my favorite my favorite films from the sort of forgotten 2000s and the road to el dorado that was another very underrated film so Great these dudes, these dudes have been working in what we would now consider children and family entertainment pretty much for their entire career but then as a result of their connection with disney they were handed what was expected to be a colossal failure which was part of the Disney initiative to bring some of their most famous rides to life <laughs> and launched with the country bears was followed up with haunted mansion <laughs> and then pirates of the Caribbean, um, which Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, the writers of this film that we are going to discuss today, little monsters are the writers of the pirates of the Caribbean uh, Caribbean series. Skeleton um, pirates could not have been possible without these men. <laughs> characterization through quirk. Right? You can see Johnny it. Depp. <laughs> so Little Monsters is a, a is very much a product of the 1980s family film market, but yet it was also crafted by people who would go on to shape what we now consider family entertainment. And in a lot of ways, I think they might have learned from the lack of success in this film just how far they can push it. Um, because all of them have, if you look at Shrek, 
you look at small soldiers small soldiers has an edge to it as well oh yes um small soldiers is a violent film right the violence being enacted is on toys so you take it but it's an extremely violent film uh shrek has another big blustery main character who says a lot of funny lines and bumbles around and makes <coughs> mistakes but ultimately you know does the right thing um there's a lot of commonality here a lot of gross out humor in shrek that i saw in little monsters mm -hmm. very much so uh like I said, there, there's a scene that, that turned both of my kids' heads that I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this this is a film that, because of the individuals involved, I think has at least a marginal place in someone's, you know, sort of film experiential landscape. I think it's worth having it in here because you can see the seeds of basically two writers who would go on to, to shape a lot of some of the most successful franchises in the history of film at this point. Um, I mean, how many Aladdin sequels did we get? A bajillion. <laughs> We're getting more. Um, yeah. So, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, obviously. And, uh, you know, then they kind of went on. They did The Lone Ranger and we won't talk about that. Well, we might talk about that at some point. Because, <laughs> boy, golly, it's a failure. Gore Verbinski, um, how could you? How could you do it? Um, but I want to read you one last Google review because I think it really captures a lot of the feeling and sentiment around this film. Uh, so this is from six months ago, which I think is pretty good. But I love Howie, but sadly he was better in Deal or No Deal. He had a lot of character, but the kid was too childish. For my liking i love Disagree. the leather i love the leather howie keep it up you're my favorite bald guy my dad is my second your soul patch brightens my soul i feel like if it walked off your face today it would play soul music with uncle cracker speaking of uncle cracker he should have had a feature in this movie it was to bring ambiance most epic dog but it is a good movie don't forget. Uh, oh, it is a good movie, Hootie. Don't forget. Keep blowing that fish. I love you. I'll <laughs> well, have to make this a regular thing. Yeah, I think so. And to me, this is a no deal. America does not have talent. Only Canadians like you and Letterkenny <laughs> and Mr. Leahy. I must go now. My bagel bites are burning. Wow. And I just need to point out that four people found that review helpful. I find that review very helpful. It's extremely helpful. <laughs> so yes, Hootie, keep blowing that fish. Um, and uh, with that, let's uh, let's get into <laughs> Little Monsters, uh, directed by Richard Allen Greenberg, uh, the only film that Richard Allen Greenberg ever directed. He does have a credit on a. Uh, mid-season episode of Tales from the Crypt, but that's it. However, he had a long and illustrious career in film, not as a film director, but as a title designer. Uh, he is one of the legends of film title design. Him and his brother's um, title company was responsible, most famously, for the original Superman credits. Uh, so the credits with the long, you know, sort of sloping lines that got you know, reproduced for the, the Superman Returns uh, update that Brian Singer did in the mid-2000s. They were the original designers for that, and that pretty much solidified their success 
in Hollywood title design, which they he did pretty much for his entire career. Uh, he did work in visual effects as well, which I think is evident in this film that he had experience with visual effects. There's quite a bit going on, uh, low budget though they may be, and actually had an Oscar for, well, not even an Oscar, uh, but he was award-winning because he assisted on the visual effects for The Predator, uh, among other things. So a kind of interesting career, if not the most successful. Um, but uh, in any case, the film itself, uh, as we said, is is this attempt to understand uh, where the monsters under the bed come from and, and what they're trying to do. But in the midst of that, we get a fairly harsh family drama, uh, which again, uh, this feels kind of ripped from E.T. for me, um, because I, I guess a lot of people, I'm not going to say forget, but it, in, E.T. is such a large sort of spectacle of a film that you kind of forget that the core of that movie is about a family that is struggling uh, through a divorce, yeah. right? A, a separation in the family and the, the sort of disconnect between mother and children, the ability for them to just sort of, you know, flit around without a lot of parental guidance is because Dee Wallace was playing a single mom who was struggling to keep her family together in the midst of this you know, horrible life event. Um, so this film is, is of that piece as well. Uh, so as it opens, and uh, it opens almost melancholic, right? The title sequence, and Alan Green, Richard Greenberg was a uh, title sequence designer, it, it is a slow zoom in revealing the word little over the, the main credits. And yeah, I like the, the monsters, little, I like the joke you know, there. <laughs> yeah, you know, the monsters sort of emerging from the darkness uh, kind of thing. And then we, um, and then we sort of open on a, a family who is moving, right? And we, we fade in from black and white, right? So it opens in black and white, which again is a very interesting choice I, i'm not i'm not sure exactly what i'm supposed to read out of that um but we do get this you know little voiceover from fred savage kind of laying out the scene and i think we're meant to to understand that this is negative right this isn't like the positive family move where everybody's excited about it this is a bad move uh, nobody wants to move the the situation is not good and um, nobody's really happy about it because in the 1980s, I think, was one of the first times that we had, you know, coming out of the 70s and, and all of these far more realistic films that were attempting to sort of ground themselves in reality, or at least the sort of glossier Hollywood reality of reproducing life. Um, the 1980s, I think we had a lot of our family films really delve into more difficult subjects. And uh, this one seems to be. So we fade in on the moving truck, the two brothers sitting on the porch, watching their stuff get pulled out of the van. And uh, then we almost immediately cut to an interesting alarm clock contraption that I think is supposed to convey that Fred Savage is fairly mechanically adept. Uh, I yeah. think that's the idea, which, which comes back later. There's a lot of Rube Goldberg Too later. type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Could have been Very earlier. Much. Could have come back earlier, but I think we're supposed to understand that he's he's got a little aptitude mechanically and scientifically, um, and uh, 
he sneaks down past his parents' bedroom to make the now infamous peanut butter and onion sandwich, which is disgusting. Um, he seems to enjoy it immensely. I, I doubt very seriously that Fred Savage was eating an actual peanut butter and onion sandwich. I, I can't imagine Fred Savage being down with that. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that is not in my contract. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but they do make it, and it's it's straight up just sliced onions piled onto peanut butter on, you know, traditional white bread. Uh, but he's he's awoken, and we get our first of really several uh, sequences where we see his par- we hear his parents fighting. And I, I don't know, I like this opening sequence. Uh, I don't think that the emotions that Savage is experiencing here are super accurate. I think he he doesn't seem fair he doesn't seem very perturbed, I guess I should say. He doesn't seem very perturbed by what's going on with his parents. He's it, it's it's de rigueur, which I guess could be the point, right? He's heard it all before, so he's just gonna go about his business. But he goes down, makes a sandwich, and then he watches some, uh, what looks like public access television is what it looks like. Um, I think this is supposed to be Boston. There's a lot of Boston references, you know, people wearing Celtics jerseys. So I think that's what it's supposed to be. Um, And he is watching television, some public access, and we get our first look at uh, one of the other... I don't want to call him a star in this film because he's not really in it much, but one of the other characters, uh, Rick DeCommon. Uh, <clears throat> Who's who wonderful and very scary in this movie. He's very scary. The makeup in this film is is not to be... Uh, it's, it's difficult to understate that it, it is frightening in many cases, um, both in its coloration, its design, its overall look. The monsters look monstrous, right? It's not like a lot of children's fare where the monsters are actually sort of still adorable. Uh, in this case, they're quite monstrous, and many of them are disgusting. Uh, which, again, feels of the 80s, right? Nobody was really trying to be too soft at that point. But uh, Dukaman actually gets to, to sort of cameo here as the public access host who's interviewing some sort of bombshell, uh, obviously supposed to be some kind of quote-unquote model. Uh, it's a funny sequence. It, you know, it's kind of a... Uh, he, he mispronounces her name. He doesn't really seem especially interested in anything she has to say. Um, but I, I guess this is just supposed to replicate the idea of a, a kid getting up in the middle of the night to go downstairs and watch some, some inappropriate television. But it's really just a setup for um, the introduction of the monsters uh, because his little brother wakes up. Um, it is a funny scene though. Like to comment, he has a, he like pulls his sunglasses down and he's just staring right at her breasts, you know, just like straight at her breasts, but ignoring everything that she's saying. It um, really does kind of set up the, the place, like the time of this film, because you couldn't do that in a, in a children family film now. No. Um, Highly but in the 1980s, you know, you could have these really intensely scary films. You could have these intensely sexualized films and kind of scandalous mm-hmm. films. And they would still be somehow appropriate to show to people who are like 12. <laughs> yes. Um, for some reason, <clears throat> Family Fair in the 1980s was much more willing to to sort of push into these these what we would now consider inappropriate areas right uh discussions of sex there's a joke later in this movie where um the parents are arguing off screen again 
And he says, you know, all you want me for is my paycheck. And she's like, well, I'd take more, Mr. Headache. You know, it's, <laughs> um, you yeah. know, it's, you know, that's a pretty obvious joke there for anybody who knows what's going on. But it, it seems more of the mindset that in the 1980s, you had your parent jokes and you had your kid jokes. And you tried to write your parent jokes to the level that the kid just wouldn't understand what it was. And, and I actually no think that that was clarify. extremely effective. I really do. It could be. Yeah. I mean, when handled, when done well, for sure. Um, I think, you know, part of the issue is, is that now nobody's willing to kind of ride that line. Well, and we don't have, we don't have writers, I think, who are quite as talented as they were in creating something that appeals to those audiences in kind. I don't know. That's just for my sure. impression. Oh, and I mean, and double entendre is hard. I mean, it's always hard to pull off. Yeah, that's what she said. Trying... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Double entendre is <laughs> <always> <laughs> hard. Um, but we're very quickly introduced to the parents. Uh, this is a this is a Savage film. So Fred Savage plays Brian, the oldest brother, uh, and this is pretty much right as Wonder Years was getting started. So if you've ever seen Wonder Years, especially the first couple seasons, it's that Fred Savage. He's a little bit older than he was in Princess Bride, um, but he is very much of a piece there. And and you know I know we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but I think it's worth noting even at this early stage that Fred Savage is excellent in this. Film. He is he is such a talented actor, even he as an adult. This movie, yeah. but He's, just yeah. watching him work as a kid is is insane. I'm as I get older, I I don't know if this is just a, a consequence of being around children more. Like when I you know, we both were teachers. Um, that I really notice gifted child performers. I mean, I've gone back and I've watched, you know, River Phoenix. I've watched, you know, now Fred Savage. And then you compare it with some of the more disastrous child performances. Like, I don't want to pick on him, but Jake Lloyd as Anakin Skywalker was pretty disastrous. Sure. And I'm just, I'm so impressed by both of the Savage kids in mm -hmm. this movie. Um, and of course, like I'm a huge fan of Ben Savage just in general because I grew up watching Boy Meets World, so I was I'm I'm tickled that he was in this movie too. Yeah, and they're both great performances. Uh, the one that I I tend to like in Fred Savage's early work too uh, is actually Henry Thomas in yeah. in ET. Uh, there's a video that's circulated for years now of his audition tape for that movie and the sort of depth of feeling that he was able to produce basically on the fly in his audition for Steven Spielberg in a dark room. And, and I think Fred Savage is very much at that level. Um, he just, obviously Fred Savage seemed, he got much more um, comedic roles, right? He was often the, the funny man to someone else's straight performance. So he doesn't necessarily get to go to those deep dramatic levels as often in his early career <laughs> as, you know, like Henry Thomas got to in a few of his movies, but there's certainly a level of skill there that you don't often see in child actors, right? I think it's become more common now because there's a bedrock of quality child acting that you can draw from if you're getting into that as a, as a young actor now. Uh, as well as just a, a better understanding of how film acting works. But in the 1980s, there were a lot, a lot of kids' movies. I mean, like Three Ninjas, you know, which I guess is more 90s, but still, <clears throat> you know, like 
that's what most kid acting was, right? It was smirk at the camera, turn your head, run to the left, and and you know just kind of get through it. Um, Mac and me, right? I mean, yeah, I mean you couldn't always have your Jodie Foster in the Disney live action films. Right. You know, that was that was exceptional, <laughs> and it really felt like Fred Savage tapped into that exceptional quality that. You know, really quality, good actors in you know things like Disney films ended up having. Yeah, definitely. This ain't no candle shoe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so both of the parents are here, uh, which I think they're both pretty great. Uh, one is Margaret Witten, who actually had her other major success the year that this came out, which was with Major League, where she played the villainous team owner. Um, and that was really her only other sort of major film breakthrough. She worked for a long time, um, did a lot of TV stuff. But, you know, this those were the two projects that I knew her from as a kid. But the best crossover or the most interesting crossover, given uh, the success that Wonder Years was eventually going to achieve, is that Fred Savage's father is played by Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern. Uh, so the in, in Wonder Years, if... if You've never seen the show. Fred Savage played the young version of a much older man who is telling us the story of his childhood growing up in the 1960s in America. And that older version was voiced by Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern was the narrator of that show. So Fred Savage played his younger self. In this one, Daniel Stern plays his father. Um, and it seems like Daniel Stern's only real direction was... Make your eyes as wide as possible and be incredibly angry all the time. <laughs> and there are there are moments where I feel like cause Daniel Stern is a lovely human um, mm -hmm. and a wonderful actor, um, but it it seems like those moments are the most directed, where they're like, "Okay, now be an angry dad." Mm -hmm. But then he has these really sweet moments with with he Ben yeah. Savage, especially where it's like, "Oh." That's just precious, and that feels very wholesome and sort of genuine, unlike the rest of the performance. <laughs> so I kind of I'm I'm sad that he didn't get to do more of that, you know, wholesomeness with the the kids because I feel like right. that would have been a little more believable. Yeah, from a story function, <clears throat> it seems like the parents are. They're meant to be in turmoil, and and I'll be I'll you know be fair to the film and say that all of pretty much all of the the adult presence in the film are are cruel or mean at one point or another, uh, save for the mother. Uh, mom is is genuinely sweet, and one of the things I think Greenberg does very well he does really simple setups for conversations between the mom and the children. Usually they're they're shot kind of straight on and they're snuggled up together or very physically close. It it feels like a, a very real parent relationship. And the but the rest of the adults, pretty much all of them, you know, all the teachers that we see, the bus driver, who really is only in a couple of scenes, but she's a very angry, you know, sort of typical I'm going to, you know, beat your ass uh, bus driver character from a 1980s movie. <laughs> uh, they're, all of the adults are, I think, we're meant to interpret them and see them as hostile. Yeah. Right. Or at least most of them. Um, because the subtext of this, not even the subtext, but one of the subplots of this film that doesn't really get addressed is that these monsters, 
when you sort of go down into their world, the longer you spend there, the more you interact with them, you become one of them, right? And you attempt to escape the negative situation that you find yourself in up above, right? And have a world of fun at your disposal. Um, and this film seems to be setting up very, very clearly that Fred Savage is pretty dissatisfied with his life, right? He doesn't like school because he feels alone. He hasn't made new friends at this new place. He gets picked on pretty relentlessly by uh, Kevin, Mc uh, Kevin McAllister's older brother. Buzz! <laughs> Buzz, yeah, your girlfriend, woof. <laughs> yeah, this is. This I was is so Buzz, happy when I know. saw that ugly mug. I love that kid. It's pretty good, man. Um, but so he's he's pretty frustrated with his existence at the moment. Uh, he has one sort of pseudo friend at school, a young girl that uh, he gets along with, but doesn't really, you know, think about very much. He's got his brother who he cares about pretty deeply, uh, and then his family. Uh, but his family is not a fantastic source of support for him right now either. Uh, I do love that a lot of stuff that would be focal points in a modern family film are kind of backgrounded here. You know, they've just moved. The house that they've moved into is in a state of disrepair. They've obviously bought it as a kind of fixer-upper opportunity. And the dad doesn't seem interested in fixing or upping the film and the, uh, the house in any way. But that was kind of the idea or what they were thinking about anyway. And so a lot of that's there. Um, he sort of has, Fred Savage's character has free reign of the attic. That's where he lives. And so he's got a very cool, you know, Christmas lights on the walls. Everything's The, the 80s insulated. youth fantasy bedroom. <laughs> exactly. Right. The 80s youth fantasy bedroom. That's a good way to put it. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, the film does a good job of sort of establishing these situations without being incredibly overt about them. Um, they feel very natural as story points. They're not working too hard to make sure that you're paying attention, which again, I think a lot of family films in the 1980s were generally pretty good at, right? They were more comfortable then of allowing the film to just sort of stand and breathe. And this one definitely has that. Um, and, and we're really coming to the end of what we now call the latchkey kid era, um, it's still continued, obviously, but as far as seeing it represented in media, over we stopped and over glorifying over again, it. <laughs> exactly, we just stopped focusing on it, probably because somebody finally realized, "Hey, this actually isn't good." <laughs> that kids just kind of do whatever the hell they want for about three hours after school, and nobody's around to pay attention to them. Um, but you know, I think Greenberg. One of the things that is really good about it, and this is probably the script from Elliot and Rossio too is that I think a lot of the kid dialogue is very natural. And I think a lot of the conversations they have feel accurate, right? They feel plausible, right? I, a lot of kids' movies, especially modern kids' movies, I, I typically sort of reject a lot of the conversations they end up having because it's like no kids would talk about this. They're only going to talk about this stuff because it's a movie, right? It's, it's And again, it's very much the E.T. phenomenon, you know, um, deal with this far face you know, that <laughs> kind of stuff like it's those things even though they are constructed feel very natural and very real but you know one of the things that I also like about the movie and I, I think is a, is a strength of it is that it doesn't get to the monster subcomponent too quickly yeah. it takes its time it builds up the family stuff 
you know, we, we get some scenes of good, we get some scenes of bad. You know, I really do like, again, I think Greenberg is really good at some of the really small stuff here. Uh, like when, uh, on the night when the monster stuff is going to happen the first time, the dad comes in, they're having the other little neighbor kid over uh, for a sleepover. And he kind of splits the kids up, sends the younger ones to bed, and then he just starts tickling Fred Savage. And That was so sweet. Him. It's just a really good, very nice scene. And you can see there is a there is like the heart of a family here but they're kind of missing it right and it's in a better film you would have wanted to have more of those moments so that at the end of the movie when you're kind of trying to show that this experience is maybe going to drive the family back together with each other there's a little bit more of a payoff there but we we don't really get it um but I, I guess i'm jumping the gun but so the now the the little kids start talking about monsters and shared experiences that they've had with hearing things and seeing things that go bump in the night, and and we really start to accelerate what's going on because Fred uh, Savage's character Brian things start happening right, and even the first you know day that we come in on there's like a a thing of ice cream in the uh, cabinet that falls on the dad and they blame Brian for it. You know, we, we get all these pranks that are going on around the house. And in a multi-sibling, so, you know, household, it's... I kind of like that they just had those things happen without introducing this heavy subplot about monsters right away because... You do get blamed for a lot. You always get blamed for something. If you have a sibling, you get blamed for stuff that they do or that you perceive that they do. So I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I kind of thought that was nice with the, the ice no, cream it, in the cupboard. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, as a premise, this is really good. It all seems very plausible, right? We all have strange things that happen, stuff we get blamed for, pranks that get played on us or seemingly by us, even though we weren't involved. And... You know, just, just all of these weird happenings in a big house in the middle of the night that can be scary. And this film attempts to sort of introduce a concept and an idea of, of why those things might happen. So really, Brian, the, the Fred Savage character, is the first one to have an overt encounter with this creature, right? The littler kids, they believe he's there, but they're not really, you know, interacting with him. But then... Savage wakes up in the middle of the night and like the television has been moved like in his closet. Is that what it is? Yes. The television has been moved in his closet and, um, and then the remote like appears at the, you know, underneath his bed and then gets sucked back in, uh, which becomes a big plot point because also of course in the 1980s, you know, who was in control of the remote dad. And if the control, if the remote disappears, dad becomes violently, <laughs> um, you know, just, oh, it fell down on the couch cushions again, Dad. Just feel around. No, I already looked. It's not there. God damn it. You know, like that kind of stuff. So this is where the, the you know, engineering acumen that our, our, our good Brian Robinson is supposed to have is uh, is brought to the forefront. And he designs a, a trap, right? Something that if there is something under the bed, he is going to be the one to catch it. Brian Stevenson. Stevenson. So he's going to be the one to catch it. 
so we see him uh oh the other big prank on the ice cream morning was that his bike winds up behind the dad's car and he runs it over and smashes it um which of course again in the 1980s a kid without his bike was like a kid with his arms cut off right how dare you how dare you take my bike it's my only way of getting out of this house it's my only way um and the uh, the whole you know circumstance, everything's strange. Everybody's angry at each other for no reason. Um, but Brian decides he's going to do something about it. So he constructs some material out of his crushed bicycle, and then uh, hatches a plot to go to bed early, set everything up, and then catch whatever this thing is. Uh, so here, you know, we're very much in the, the E.T. territory. We're kind of in the Goonies territory of the industrious kid who is is taking matters into his own hands, right? Something's going on, and I'm not just going to rely on my parents to fix it. I'm going to do it myself. And it's a good plan. The, the scenes are shot very interestingly. There is a, as he's setting everything up, there is a sort of three-quarter bird's eye camera uh that they use that's a bit disorienting as i was watching it with the the family the other night these scenes i don't know for some reason that when i saw them they just they hit me wrong and i was like ah it was just it didn't didn't sit with me i i understand why they were picked so you could kind of see the complexity of everything he was setting up sort of like a ferris bueller's kind of move but uh yeah it didn't didn't those shots didn't work for me but yeah in essence, he he builds this elaborate Rube Goldberg machine. He lines up Doritos to to lure the creature, you know, into a particular spot and out from under the bed. And then, sure enough, the the creature arrives in the middle of the night. Um, and here we get introduced to the other sort of major character of this film. At this point, we've got Brian, played by Fred Savage, his family, uh, a couple of other kids from school. But that's pretty much it. And now. Uh, fully 25 minutes i guess into the movie we finally see the monster which uh i like i, I think this is a, a really good choice to build your characters and establish your setting and, and your sort of character motivations before you get to your big reveal it's it's not dissimilar from what beetlejuice does yeah right? uh beetlejuice has a few more teases leading up to his big reveal but still you know you know, it's a film with a, a different budget and different actors and, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a and perfect very, world, this film could have received the same thing. Right. I mean, in, in the, at this period in the 1980s, Tim Burton, you know, was, was a, in my opinion, a much better director than he is today. <laughs> yeah. Um, in Dump terms trucks of, full of money will do wild things to your integrity as an artist. <laughs> exactly. Uh, not that I, you know, I don't hate... I, I have I don't I've never hated a Tim Burton film, but I've certainly found many of them forgettable and uninteresting. Um, but '80s Tim Burton generally didn't have that problem. So um, the character that gets introduced is Maurice, and uh, they wrestle in the dark. The dad comes in, and uh, as he arrives and sees the the aftermath. <laughs> of uh, brian's escapades right because he's sawed off the legs of his bed and <laughs> which is a consistent theme in this film sawing your bed yes. down everybody in this house by the end of it has a bed that just sits straight on the floor which is, is pretty interesting <laughs> um 
But, uh, you know, we get a, a freaked out dad moment. Daniel Stern being very angry <laughs> at all of the things he's done that he has to, you know, clean everything up, you know, what have you. Um, but here's where they introduce the concept that the monsters cannot be visible in light, right? Light is antithetical to their presence. And so our, our character here, Maurice, is reduced to a pile of clothes, uh, which I guess we could mention some of the costuming here. Again, this is not a hot, this is not a big budget film. Uh, the costuming is, for the most part, pretty, pretty uninteresting. But the monsters specifically all get very defined looks. Yeah. Um, which feels like a, a very specific choice. I, I think the idea was supposed to communicate that as you develop into a monster, not only are you you know, sort of beholden to the clothes you came in with, right? Like the clothes that, that you started, but also then you modify, right? From found objects. Because that's kind of what conceptually the sort of monsters area feels like is sort of like an island of misfit toys, right? The, 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 the place where lost things go. So you sort of assemble your, your monster character out of what you find. And so Maurice here um, is... I hesitate to use the word iconic. I don't think anything in this film is iconic, but it's an interesting design. He's wearing a, a leather biker's vest with born to be wild on the back, I believe. And uh, a denim shirt <laughs> and, uh, you know, almost you know, just kind of a biker vibe. It's, 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 it's like a punk rock set thing. of choices. Yes. It, it feels very punk. He's got a bit of a mohawk. Um, his skin is blue. He he looks kind of impish, I guess. I mean, I think that's kind of what they were going for. He's got an oversized head, uh, you know, some some sharp teeth. Uh, we see him develop horns, which becomes sort of his standard costume, but he doesn't have them when we first see him here. They are uh, made his... of comically flexible latex, and yes, the effect uh, does not work. <laughs> No, no, um, no. Everything, all of the 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 applications and whatnot are, are pretty uh, pretty low rent, uh, if I must say so myself. They're definitely working within a budget. I mean, so that's obviously a concern. But once as the sun comes up, because uh, Brian has trapped Maurice in his room, his bed is is laid down and he can't get out. So he's forced to sort of endure a bit of sunlight, and that sunlight may causes him to grow these sort of, you know, goat horns uh, on the side of his head, which he's very perturbed by. And so I guess we should really talk a little bit about Howie Mandel's performance uh, as Maurice. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's introduced scarily, right? He's, he's like, Argh! you know, the, the very sort of typical you know, human being imitating a monstrous creature kind of thing. But then he quickly, you know, switches to uh, a much more sort of manic and Robin Williams-esque performance style, right? He's making jokes, he's laughing, he's giggling. Um, he starts melting in this scene, mm. which is kind of interesting. He, he begins to sort of collapsing into the floor on a very obvious false floor. <laughs> he's just being slowly lowered through. The Maurice freaked me and, out when I was little. 
This yeah. this this whole introduction once the monsters showed up, I as for as many horror movies like straight up rated R traumatizing horror movies as we had watched as children of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. This movie stayed with me as being scary. And I can't even explain yeah. why. I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street when I saw this movie. Not scary. <laughs> but this scary. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with how Greenberg chooses to shoot it. He shoots everything is pretty dark. There's a lot of shadow in this scene. Yeah. Um because Maurice in full lighting isn't that scary. No. He looks a little gross. But this was shot very dark. Um it's it, it's shot a bit more horror-like, I suppose. Because I think we are meant to be at least somewhat intimidated by Maurice at the start. Because like Brian, we don't know exactly what's going on. But by the end of it, most of his power has been quite literally deflated, right? He's he's sort of fallen into just a pile of clothes that Brian sort of sweeps underneath his bed. Yeah. And then the tag on the scene is, is Howie Mandel reasserting himself and... Saying, hey, I'm fine. Everything's good. He's got a little weird little pair of sunglasses on that we never see again. Um, but it's, it's, it is a strange way to introduce a character like this. Because we, by the end of the scene, we really don't know what he is or if he's good or if he's bad. He certainly doesn't seem dangerous at the end of it. But at the same time, the rest of the scene is just fairly tense and somewhat terrifying. Uh, And then it's really just out of pity that Brian sort of sweeps his clothes under the bed. It's, it's a, it's an interesting way to introduce a character like this because we, you know, again, if we're going to look at another film by these guys, the introduction of the genie and Aladdin happens at roughly the same point in the film. Mm -hmm. And he's meant to be a little bit scary, a little bit terrible don't know if we can trust him but by the end of that scene you know that the genie and aladdin are going to get along in this one eh, not so much um so then we we get another uh sort of unfortunate family drama scene where you know nobody's super happy the dad can't find the remote still so he's very upset because he can't watch He's, I guess he's trying to watch three different sporting events at the same time, <laughs> and he can't manually switch the channels, which is forcing him, or he can't remotely switch the channels, so it's forcing him to sit in front of the television and switch back and forth, which he finds just very, very perturbing. Um, and, and so that leads us to the next scene, and Maurice, of course, returns. And as he returns, he delivers the remote, and seemingly he's like, okay, we're done here, I, I'm out. And Brian traps him again with another contraption. Uh, In this case, uh, a bunch of rigged lights because he knows now that lights will cause Maurice to collapse into a pile of clothes. So Maurice quite literally gets absolutely neutered as a character in terms of his, I guess, his power in the very next scene. Brian is totally in control. Which, as a kid, I thought was awesome. Right. How cool is it that this kid has outsmarted this monster who claims to have been alive for several hundred years? Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But 
we can see the the beginnings of I, I suppose we can call it their friendship happening here um and i don't know you you know this i i hesitate to even call it a relationship right because i i don't know that these two characters up until the very end of the film ever really develop much of a friendship uh we get some montages later in the movie where they're doing pranks and stuff together where they're having a good time but it always feels a bit contentious right it, it always feels like there's something else maybe going on and it's it's definitely a little different um but man uh but mandel's character is manic and wild as you said a lot of referential humor uh, a lot of jokes embedded in the 1980s themselves um you know specific references to events going on that uh you know have lost context you know 30 years on but certainly played in the moment i think but so what are your feelings on on maurice here as mandel sort of begins to shape the character into this much more figure sort of um underbaked i feel like there's just not there's either not enough time or they're they're focused so much on the humor of Maurice and cementing this comedic performance that I don't get a sense of a real character. And I don't think that's the part, I don't think that's the, the fault of Howie Mandel. I don't even know if it's the fault of the, the film itself. I mean, I would have to read the script and I, I don't, I don't know where the script even is. Um, but it, it feels like the direction was be as funny as possible, make as many jokes as possible in as short amount of time as possible, and it will be right. a success. And so I, I kind of lose any sense of a performance here because, you know, the rapid fire comedy thing works for someone like Robin Williams, but he does know when to kind of pull back and let a joke land. And I don't feel like we ever get a, a chance to breathe with any of the humor in this this character honestly this is a movie uh, and, and this is ironic given that last week when we talked about tom cruise's the mummy this is a movie that frankly needs more exposition yeah we don't get enough information about what is going on here maurice attempts to sort of explain that the monsters get up to mischief that's what they do that that is their 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 entire, you know, sort of thing is to cause. But he'd have to stop humans. making jokes for that explanation to really get anywhere with the audience, and he doesn't ever stop. Right, um, and it, it's really just about sort of establishing this this very sort of crazed tone for the character, and and it, as you said earlier, it feels a bit like his his stage comedy you know, brought to this character. But, you know, we do get a nice little thing here. He says, you know, we, we live life the way that the creators of this planet intended, which is like having fun all the time or something. Um, you know, so there's, there's some interesting stuff here. It's, it's certainly intriguing, but most of it is to, in essence, convince Brian to to follow him down into their world 
uh, into the world of the little monsters, of which Maurice is just one. And so, you know, this is the sort of magical moment that most kids' movies in the 1980s attempted to develop, uh, which was the, the transition into the unknown, right? To go from the known to the unknown, the, the place where you're confident and comfortable and safe into new territory, right? Um, it's the thing that Steven Spielberg can do basically without trying, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it's like his special ability, right? It's his super move. And I think this film proves that that is not as easy to pull off as you might think. <laughs> because as we transition to the, I guess we could call it the underworld. I don't think it's ever really named, um, but it has a couple of cool concepts. So this was, these were all filmed in abandoned warehouses in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it shows. Which is why I think <laughs> and it shows. Uh, the lighting is, is very bad. Um, it's, it's mostly just red and it, it's meant to be a little bit, um, a little bit off-putting. Maurice gives the tour. It's, it's all very slapdash, but there are uh, stairways and ladders to everywhere, right? You know, connecting to every you know bedroom in the world basically is, is supposed to be the concept here no, I, um, yeah. which again revisited in a thing like monsters uh, monsters incorporated later but you know it's it's an interesting concept now, this is where I, I expose some of the things that push my buttons in movies as far as horror and one of them is vast dark and desolate and and sort of weird locations like this. Another movie that I we talked about before we got started tonight um, that I thought of while watching Little Monsters was Meet the Hollowheads, which at some mm-hmm. point, if you'd like to discuss it, <laughs> I may be able to watch it again. Um, yeah, it's it's been a while. I can tell oh, you. <laughs> um, and the the design of the underworld in this movie just freaks me out. It's so scary. Um, yeah. And, and it, once I watched the film, rewatched the film, I was sort of transported back to being, what was I, four when this came? I think it was four. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. I can remember being incredibly scared of this environment, just that it was so dark and so cluttered and it looked abandoned. And I mean, it really did look like a warehouse that was full of junk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And those kinds of locations are just, oh, I don't know what it is, but that that goes full horror for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's lit like a horror film. Everything's in red and blue, you know, contrasting colors. Um, and it it's, it's all very dark, probably by necessity. Again, if this was just a big abandoned warehouse, they can't light very well without revealing what it is. Um, but it's all very shabbily designed as well. Like there's lots of stuff hanging. Uh, I mean, and there are some legitimately scary moments. Some of the, the other little monsters that he meets, there's like a kid who's sitting and he's got insect legs that are dangling down super far. Most of the other monsters have incredibly messed up faces, right? Eyes out of position, uh, you know, some are just, I've got some blue face paint on, you know, I mean, it's very simple, you know, because again, no budget, but most of them are children 
like legitimate children who have been made up to look monstrous. Um, there's a lot of insectile things. I guess the person who hands out the pranking jobs, which again, there seems to be an, a, at least some indication that there's a kind of pecking order for the monsters, right? There's a bureaucracy involved <laughs> here, um, which again, I think gets explored in, in other media that attempts to do this in, in interesting ways. But, you know, like they, they have jobs to do, right? This isn't just them, ha you know, it, it seems antithetical to the. It seems antithetical to what Maurice is selling Brian on that this is just endless fun, um, which again this is a sort of you know it's it's the Pinocchio concept right when the, the moment somebody sells you on endless fun there's a catch, and and there definitely is in this movie too but Maurice seems intent on convincing Brian that this is just nothing but a great time. Um, so then we get our first of a, a couple of montages in the movie where Maurice takes Brian with him on some pranking runs, right? So they're putting down, uh, you know, muddy footprints everywhere. They, you know, they're, um, you know, messing with people's lunch, uh, lunches, uh, all kinds of stuff. A couple of little cute scenes like Maurice, um, what is he, he takes the top off the cat food with his teeth like it's a can opener you know a couple of like little goofy things yeah. there's a lot of slapstick humor in here I, I will say my my son's about nine and he adored this like he loved this when we rewatched it we'd watched it once before when he was much younger and i don't think it made much of an impression um if if he did it was it was very marginal but this time through, he, he laughed at pretty much every joke. He liked Maurice as a character. Um, the movie worked for him for the most part. My daughter, who's 11, <laughs> she had your reaction, <laughs> right? Like, this is freaky. I don't like this. This is wrong. This is, <laughs> this is bad. Uh, the breakaway moment for her, though, after, you know, as they're going through the pranking stuff is when they replace the apple juice with urine. That like was gross. She was not, yeah. So, I mean, basically, Brian convinces Maurice to prank specifically the bully, right? Kevin McAllister's <laughs> And so they, they screw with his lunch for the next day, and, and basically Maurice drinks his apple juice, which is already in the, the refrigerator with his name on it, and then replaces it with pee, um, which is disgusting. Yeah. But... But so Brian's, you know, they're having a great time. Um, you know, Savage again with his his incredible ability to emote on camera. He sells the glee of being a, a kid who's felt pretty pretty put upon, pretty beset by trouble. He he definitely sells being the kid who's enjoying having this kind of power, right? And being able to pull off this kind of stuff. And then, honestly, after the pranking scene, I think we get the funniest scene in the movie by far, which is when all of the kids wake up after being pranked the next morning. And they're all actual kids who are definitely reacting to people speaking very angrily to them. They're just kind of bewildered. There's this one little girl I remember. Um, she's just like she's blonde haired and she's got these little chubby she's got like these big blue eyes and it's some parent yelling at her about like do you want to go to military school is that what you want <laughs> and her eyes just go super wide 
But that little montage, I think this movie needed more of that if it wanted to balance out some of the darker components. And it really... I don't really get it, that we you know, we don't have a passage of time. I didn't ever get a sense that he had been spending a lot of time with Maurice. No, I mean, the way that the timeline seems to work out on this, this is night two. Yeah. Right? So this is day two of this adventure. Um, I think towards the end of the movie, we're meant to think it's been a while, a couple weeks maybe. But that never really lands because we also have the additional timeline of his regular life, which is his parents' relationship sort of increasingly getting worse. And then there's this science project that they were supposed to have completed that he just completely, you know, sort of ditches and doesn't do. And, you know, he gets his he gets to savor his prank um, on the bully the next day because uh, he he watches him eat his lunch and then realize that uh, his apple juice is is pee and uh, he gets his nice little comeuppance there. We actually did after the film have a, a talk with my son about bullies because uh, he, he he's unfortunately dealt with a few bullies already in his life in, in his school and. Um, you know, he was like, and we, you know, we, we always try to caution you, know, you the comeuppance of a bully is, is often inevitable, but generally it's, it can be just as destructive for you if you're the one enacting the vengeance. And he's like, yeah, but dead sometimes it just feels really good <laughs> to see it. And, and this movie, you know, it, we get that moment, right? That's, that's sort of the catharsis of or the justification for what he's doing and, and this double life that he's leading of uh, going down into the, the monster world every night to spend time with Maurice, who who is becoming a fixture in his life, whether they're friends or, or what have you, you know, they are definitely spending a lot of time together. And Maurice definitely seems to enjoy having him around, right? Which is, is nice. And Mandel is, even though I think he's still dialed a couple notches too high for the vast majority of this movie. I, I still think that he's he's crafting a character who is likable enough. Yeah. Um I you know and and I don't know. Well I think it would have helped if we had seen maybe something or gotten something to indicate that Maurice is unhappy or maybe can't find a good friendship or or something in the underworld. I mean, we get that from from Fred Savage, but then there is this lingering question I have of like, why is Maurice hanging out with this kid? Right. What is it about it? Yeah. Uh, there is some indication later in the film because again, it's it's hinted at strongly at this point in the movie that there is some kind of upper management to this place. Yeah. Um, and that the children who wind up here aren't just allowed to do whatever they want, no matter what Maurice might say. They do have jobs to complete. They have things to do. And, you know, Maurice is a prankster. But one of the things that I think this film is missing, um, and it'll probably come up when we do our one thing, is I think it's Maurice's backstory. Where he came from and who he is, right? Because he's not like the other little monsters, Right. He's different. Um, he's been there a long time. Right. So who is he? Where did he come from? What brought him to that space? And why does he feel so 
convinced that Fred Savage should be there with him, right? What are the what are the commonalities, the things that they that make them the same that he wants to sort of bring him into that world? But he he seems content to just sort of have quote unquote fun with Fred Savage's character. Um, so they go to the girlfriend's house, right, which is the next kind of big sequence. And this is weird. And Maurice. It's very strange. Um, this didn't age well. It's, it's it's awkwardly handled. It's it's extremely misogynistic as they sort of discuss the the outcome of this girl. Uh, what is uh, Maurice makes a couple of lewd joke over the shoulder, Boulder Holder. He also you know, what girls do you like? Makes some yeah. some like. I mean, there's a lot of of sort of middle school sex humor that doesn't quite land in this script. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just, it's best to avoid that if you can in, in children, family movies, because it, it almost inevitably never ages well ever. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't here. Yeah. Um, it feels strange to have, I mean, it's fine if, if, you want to establish that Fred Savage has this girl that he likes, and that becomes a reason to stay tied to the quote unquote real world instead of the monster world. That's, that's fine. Um, but this, this approach to it just doesn't really land. Um, and Maurice sort of behind Fred Savage's back or behind uh, Brian's back, he, he wrecks her science project homework, uh, which you know, she's top of the class, very smart, so he knows that this will be painful for her. Um, while this is happening, you know, Fred Savage, is, he's, Maurice gives him a pair of sunglasses to cover his eyes because he knows that now when he goes back to the surface, light is, is not going to be his friend. So he's wearing these nice Ray-Ban sunglasses all the time. And so the little brother goes to to check on him the night, uh, the, this night that he's out doing the pranking and going to the girlfriend's house. And discovers that his brother is is missing, that he's he's you know absconded, and so this becomes a a pretty major point as the little brother now becomes kind of drawn in to this. Uh, I hesitate to say conflict, but he's he's part of what's going on now. He knows that his brother is up to something, and he's going to try and figure out what. But we we flash back to the monster world, but not with Maurice and Brian this time. Because there, there's got to be some kind of threat, right? At this point, there's no real threat. If Brian, you know, decides to go down with the monsters, fine. You know, yes, it's somewhat tragic because he'll not be with his family anymore. But there's no real problem that they have to deal with or solve uh, other than here's what I need to give up. But so that's what we get here. And Rick DeCommon comes back. But now he know, instead of a, a, a salacious public access host, he is Snick. Uh, another monster who looks quite a bit like Maurice. Um, he is he is of the same piece, right? So I guess we can talk a little bit about some of the other little monsters. I mentioned the one with the insect legs, but most of them, as I said, are kids. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of featured ones. Uh, one has kind of a pumpkin head. Um, one has like you know it's like a bag over their head. There's one that's dressed just very overtly like a clown with long hair. You know all of the the other little monsters are kind of deformed children. But then Maurice and Snick, played again by Rick DeCommon, and then another character that we're, we're going to meet soon, are far more adult, and they are far more in control of what's going on. 
So uh, Dukaman's Snick is kind of this monstrous ogre-like creature. Um, very angry, very violent. The tooth I, I mean, chattering. Tra- the yeah, fucking he, tooth chattering. Oh, it's, oh it's my god. pretty rough. Um, but he quite literally rips the head off <laughs> of another little monster kid. He rips his head straight off, which we're shown that he he's cradling his own head in his hands. He's got like two sets of hands. So, you know, whatever. But like he he rips the kid's head off and throws it in a basket. So Snick as a, a violent antagonist is is pretty clearly established. Um and he starts talking about a, a, another figure named Boy. And that Boy always gets what he wants. Boy wants something, Boy gets it. Uh, so Boy is our, our big bad, really. And uh, then we get a fun scene. Uh, there's a lot of baseball in this movie. A lot of references to baseball. Maurice seems to know baseball. Um, Savage has baseball cards pinned to his bedroom wall, which Maurice takes particular interest in. Uh, and likes them. He's like, got that one, got that one, got that one, don't got that one, you know? And uh, then we get a straight-up baseball scene, but the point of this baseball scene is they, uh, at least I think this is the setup, if I remember correctly, they bring down objects from, you know, the real world, lamps, vases, whatever. They play baseball with the intent of nobody actually catching the ball and then wrecking all of the valuables and then putting them back before the morning hmm. so that, you know, kids get accused of, you know, breaking lamps and stuff in the middle of the night. Yeah, I, I think that was the idea. It's like, it's, it's an excuse for destruction. If it would have been a little bit better set up, I think it would have been more interesting, but it was a neat idea. It's, it's a cool concept. It's executed very poorly. It's shot badly. There's a lot of insert shots to just people dressed as goofy monsters with bad makeup um it's it's not a great scene but it's meant to be fun there are a couple of original songs in this movie which i find absolutely hilarious they're terrible um you know sort of typical you know sort of pop 80s fair um you know little you know trying to sound like the song from the end of ghostbusters but not the good one Mm -hmm. right you know like like that kind of thing uh, but the ball goes astray. Brian goes to grab it and he finds another staircase. Uh, he goes up that staircase, you know, sort of curious about what's up there. Snick catches him. And this is the staircase to boy's room, which no one is allowed to go to. So Snick threatens to sort of throw him off. Uh, I love the casual smoking in the family yeah. film. Just another reminder of the 1980s, not really caring at all about that kind of thing. We didn't use smoking to indicate anything about a personality. It was just a thing that good guys and bad guys did. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of miss good guys who smoked cigarettes. I don't know. That's, I'm just from a different time. (laughs) (laughs) It was, yeah, it was just a very different interpretation. You'd never see something like that in a a modern, you know, quote unquote family film, unless there was an explicit call out to how bad it is to do, but nobody really does that here. Uh, So Maurice is able to save him from Snick, fortunately, um, and then sort of tell him never to go up there. And, and, you know, that's where boy is, but he sort of deflates everything. He's like, ah, don't worry about Snick. He's fine. You know, he's just, uh, he makes a joke about his, 
his hump, like ever since he got his hump, he's been such a bitch. Um, you know, all this stuff again, very wild, wild swings in age appropriate humor yeah. here. Um, which, you know, become a bit more apparent as things go on. So really the next chunk of the film is, is Brian continuing on with these escapades with Maurice. Now that his brother is aware of what's going on, he's sort of recruited one of his little friends to, um, you know, sort of be in on the situation, maybe offer some assistance and help. And then the, the next major bombshell that drops, dad comes and, and gets Brian, who Brian's grown increasingly uh, more surly, right? Like he's getting angrier. He's doing worse in school. All of these, th you know, everything's compounding. Again, I think the film is really building towards this idea that Brian will want to go to be with the little monsters as an escape, right? Like this is the next logical step because my life sucks. But that's not where the movie goes. Um, but the parents reveal that uh, they are, are going to have a trial separation. Um, and we've heard several heated conversations. Again, the, the sort of not-so-coy reference to the fact that the mom and dad aren't having sex anymore. And, you know, they're just not happy. So they're going to try and, and be apart. So dad's going to go live in the city in an apartment and continue working. The mom's going to stay with them at the house. And, and they're going to, you know, see where things go. And in general, this scene works flawlessly. Um, if a film is going to go to this place, it has to feel real. And I think this film does a pretty good job of it. I think Savage plays it a little too sarcastic, a little too snarky. I think he, given the, the character that we've been shown up until this point in the film, I think he would take this harder. And when he's out of the room, he does. Right. You know, we see him as fairly melancholic and he's he's sad and, and maybe a little upset. But really, I think his his initial snark in the scene is probably a bit overdone. But this is bad. Right. This is the the terrifying possibility of every relationship in the 1980s. Right. Like it's it's sort of fascinating how often children's films in this time period and a little bit after the worst thing that could possibly happen to your family was that your parents get divorced. Right. And that, that, uh, you know, gets dropped, which again, of course it is a, a horrifying fear that a lot of, uh, you know, eighties movies, kids, eighties movie kids had, um, save maybe for Goonies. Like I think Goonies was the only one where the vast majority of the kids came from these like very, strong households right that's always one of the things i liked was that you know bran and mikey's family they were goofy but they were very stable very secure and they all loved each other right in their own way whereas in this one i, th I think we've swung to the other side and it very much is that hey you know this bad thing can happen and uh, and when you do, you don't know what to do. And with. this and, was and the Savage Boys play it. Pretty this well. was before the the watershed moment in divorced parent movies that was Mrs. Doubtfire, and you know we really can't we can't ignore that because Mrs. Doubtfire shifted it. It turned the tides for divorcing parents in film. I mean that to me that movie 
changed the tone from this is all very bad and we want them to get back together parent trap sort of thing to mm-hmm. it is right. all right trap established that yeah time. it is all mm-hmm. right if if your parents are not together um right and if anything it, it might actually be better if they yeah aren't. they'll be happier people yeah and uh so you know he gets this news it's bad he calls on maurice who is you know up in his room they flipped the lights on so he was hiding there in a pile of clothes and we start to see that uh, Fred Savage's character ha- is developing monster-like powers, right? He used to fall through the bed and, and, you know, hit the ground hard. Now he can float like Maurice does and come down. And so he joins them on another major pranking excursion. But this time, and here's again where the movie takes a weird turn. They are pranking a baby. <laughs> A straight baby up, like, pranks. Six month old. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having H. John Benjamin um, flashbacks. It's, <laughs> it, it, exactly. It, it's implausible in the extreme. Um, and there's a lot of them, like they're all there, which is very strange. Um, but Brian rejects this, right? He this is, is is a bridge too far, apparently, right? He'll he'll willingly and, and gladly piss in his bullies, apple juice. <laughs> Because to hell with baby, that kid. <laughs> exactly. But pranking a baby, that's too much. And so we really get a lot of the monster costumes on display here. They they obviously picked a couple specific ones. And I guess there is, I guess we, we could talk a little bit, but there are a couple, just a couple of very specific practical effects in this that don't really hang with anything else. Uh, when Maurice first meets... Uh, Fred Savage, he pops his eyes out of his head hmm. and the eyes kind of come out on optical nerves and, and just sort of hang there. It's a quick shot. It's over fast, but that's really gross. Yeah. There, and in the baby scene, there's another one of those with an, an obvious puppet, right? It's a hand puppet, but it has sort of a, I mean, really almost a, a vagina-like face with two eyes Ugh. set in it. Feels a bit like a Beetlejuice Ugh. prop. I mean, or or a bad Beetlejuice prop. That's so bad. Um, and, and it sort of unfolds at the baby and then it you know, begins crying. And and that one too, it's kind of slimy. It's just, it, it doesn't hang with a lot of the other effects and it is especially gross. Um, we'll see this this effect again later when the, the true quote-unquote villain is revealed because it's mm-hmm. very similar but um there's a tone shift but this it's it's a tonal shift and the shift is to the darker because we're we what else is revealed in that scene is that fred savage is changing and uh brian when he is in the light now at night i guess it's it's a little bit nebulous the rules here break down a little bit um, but when he's in the light under certain circumstances, he is like the monsters and he sort of fades into nothing but clothes and he ends up, uh, he's walking home after the baby prank cause he doesn't want to go back through the, the bed and stumbles across his brother's friend who's sleeping in a treehouse without railing and then falls out right in front <laughs> of him, which, uh, you know, I found hilarious, uh, cause he fell like 20 feet out of a tree and was fine. Yeah. But he lands right in front of him and um, the he shines his flashlight on him and his arm disappears, right? So 
Savage seems done with all of this. Like Brian doesn't want to be involved anymore. So he, this is where he cuts the bedposts or the, the legs off all the beds, flattens them to the ground so the monsters can't come through, which we've already been shown them lifting the bed. Completely. Yeah, like, I didn't really understand that. Out of the way. I thought that would just be another way to get in trouble for messing up your bedroom, but... Okay. <laughs> yeah, even even my my kids, right? Even both of them, they were like, "Why would cutting the legs off make a difference? They can just move the bed if they want to come through." And I was like, "I, you know, I wouldn't think too deeply about it because <laughs> I don't think the writers don't did. stress kids. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a symbolic gesture on the part of the writers to show that he doesn't want the monsters around." And then we flip back to the the monster underworld, and Snick and Maurice are having a conversation. And again, there, Snick basically says he was becoming like us. He was going to become one of us. And that's what boy wants. And boy always gets what he wants. He wanted a new friend Why? to play with. <laughs> and so here again is where I think this movie, unfortunately, needs exposition, explanation. What is happening yeah. here? So the, you know, you mentioned earlier that it seemed like Maurice needed a friend. Yeah. Right, they didn't have a friend. So the implication from all of this, if if we're to read what the movie has shown us so far, is that boy or one of his acolytes lures a child down into the monster land if they prove willing. I suppose they spend more time there. They have fun. They play pinball. They eat food. They prank it's a Pinocchio story. You know, it's Pinocchio exactly, and. And then they become a new friend for boy. So the question that raises is, are all of the monsters that are down here boy's former friends that he's gotten tired of? Right. So the, our, our Google reviewer from earlier interpreted this as a, a pedophilia story. The boy plays with his playthings and then discards them, which... Sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's okay. a perfectly but valid interpretation. But there are a lot plausible. of other I mean, a, you know, situations where... He's a monster. I mean, user. Gross, I mean, it's a user. It's a person who uses someone else to their own end and then right. discards them. And that can come in the shape of and anything. And then discards them. And so, like, again, I'm, I'm interested in this hierarchy, right? So is Maurice one of the earliest that Boy did this with? Is that why he's been there for so long? Is, why he's so, is it why he's so big? Uh, same with Snick. Right, that they've they're they're elder monsters that have, you know, been there longer, whereas all of the other little children that we've seen are fresher recruits that have fallen into this category. There's a lot of world uh, building boy, that's just missing. It's not here, right? And not that you know, I, I hesitate to say that world building in a film like this makes the film. Like I don't know if it would make the film demonstrably better to know these things, but I think it would be more satisfying. <laughs> If we knew these things, because we would understand what Brian is escaping and what Maurice has been through yeah. and, and which would justify why they have an opportunity or have taken the opportunity to develop a connection because this movie ostensibly is about that connection. It is about finding a friend in this situation when you maybe didn't expect to on both sides. At, at least the ending seems to indicate that. So, you know, there there's apparently been some kind of plan running behind the scenes that I guess Maurice has been privy to and, and has even been a part of, but is now refusing to see through, right? He just wants to leave Brian alone. And again, it, it, 
this scene is pretty good because it's an opportunity for two really funny Canadian comedians to sort of play a scene yeah. together. Right. And Ducommon here, you can tell, is having a pretty good time playing this sort of big, lumbering, gross character. You know, there's there's some good humor here. Uh, Howie Mandel says, you know, you uh, you wouldn't want to see what happens when I get upset. And then like a thing happens and he's like, what was that? And he's like, I don't know. It's just what happens when I get upset. And it's it, it's funny. It's it's quick. Um, but it gets derailed. It can't be fully funny because it's actually pretty threatening, yeah. right? Dukamen is scary in this role. Uh, it's it's he's pretty gross. The makeup is bad. The thing I think that makes it most unsettling is that the hair, like they've they've built him a hairline, and then painted his face, and then they kind of put it over him like a hood, and his face moves independently. <laughs> no, of the it's hair. so weird. <laughs> And it's just really off-putting, uh, it, you know, not to the point that it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, but it, it just, it's very odd looking and uh, it's a weird effect. But I did kind of love the gag of them coming out of the sofa bed. That was one of my uh, favorite the, things in the movie. Yeah. Like. Because they decide that they, they need to get Brian back down there, right? They can't let him go. He needs to. He needs to become one of them. And so they, they flip the sofa bed open so that they have another way into the house. Genius. Which is, you know, is like, wah, wah. <laughs> you forgot to cut off the legs. And I think, one, I think if, if the, yeah. the bed logic and the sort of monster world logic had been a little bit more, a little clearer and a little stronger, that moment could have even been more effective when the bed sort of folds out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we'd known the rules of how this works, a little bit clearer. So Brian figures it out. The, his uh, little brother has, has become obsessed with having a flashlight on him at all times, and the flashlight is smashed. Um, and, and then the movie shifts gears again, right? So the first part is your fairly standard 80s family drama with the latchkey kid who's not very satisfied with his life. The second part is the magical world away, you know, find this fantastic place and explore it that was fairly typical and the last chunk of this film is yeah. the goonies which i could have right? done without it's the yeah it's the we're gonna team up and we're gonna go on an adventure to save someone or something and it's it's a hard shift it comes pretty much out of nowhere i have a hard time believing that uh Brian's mother would allow him out of the house, given that his little brother has straight up disappeared in the middle <laughs> of the night. My son is missing. I'll let my other son just do whatever he mm. wants. <laughs> I'm not going to keep track of him. He's just going to run out the front door and disappear as well. This is fine. Uh, it, it's implausible. It only makes sense in the context of a 1980s children's film <laughs> that this would be allowed to happen. But uh, so Brian goes around and, and collects Confederates. He gets the little little uh, brother's friend who he had seen earlier, who has a Rambo beret. That kid that he puts. I on. this is this is maybe just me crossing all of my my cartoony horror lines, but he is dressed. In this part of the movie, just like um, the son from Maniac Mansion, Weird Ed, 
like the beret <laughs> yeah. and everything and i'm like oh my god he's the mm-hmm. he's like the little shell-shocked kid who's gonna go nuts i love it and then nothing happened with that um i would yeah. have liked it if it had just if it had just been fred savage that would have been best but if it had been maybe him and the girl and just those two that could have worked for me yeah. but having the the team of children didn't didn't work Right. It, it very much, this feels like the most artificially constructed component of the movie to me. Everything else feels fairly natural, fairly straightforward. Um, but it's, and it's not un, unearned. Well, I'm not going to say it's un, it's earned, but it's, un, it's not unjustified, right? We know that these are some kids that are scientifically minded. So when they build their super light gun or whatever it is, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense. You know, we have the the ticking clock to provide tension of the sunrise, because if they're down there while the sun rises, that's it. You know, end of story. They're going to be little monsters. So, you know, we've got some tension, right? Everything seems, you know, structured in a way that we're going to sort of be able to keep up with it. That's fine. But, yeah, this this whole, like, team going down to rescue this, the, the brother. It, I don't see it. It doesn't. It doesn't work, uh, especially for the the girl, because she has not been a part of this at all. I mean, even a conversation earlier in the film where he said, "Man, I'm having a crazy time," or, or tried to bring her in, and she maybe said no. It'd be different, but yeah, like the, everybody's just way too game <laughs> to go do this thing that could get them all killed. Um, so they they arrive. Everything's strangely even somehow more desolate. We also have this, uh, and I, I guess we really haven't discussed this at all. The sparkling. What is that? Like, what it, what what was trails? going on there? I have no idea. Every time I, I really watched this, this last time that I watched it, I was really trying to be like because they change colors at different times, and I was like, are these supposed to be like the spirits of children who've come before? Are they lighting the way to something? But more and more, I feel like it's just an effect. Yeah. Like, it's just something to indicate that they're in a weird place. <laughs> This place is magic. Um, it's it's magical, you know, because they're the first time you see them, when they come down the first time, there's like a pinata hanging in the air that they're swirling around. It just, it doesn't make any sense. And again, that's that's one of the things I feel is this movie's greatest, it's one of its great weaknesses is that we don't understand this world. We're expected to think it's awesome and cool and interesting. And Oh my gosh, it'd be so fun to live there. But it also kind of feels like the creepy place where the foot clan hangs out in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which is definitely not cool. And I, I don't, I don't know. It just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so they've got their lights. They can make all the little monsters turn into clothes mm. so they don't really experience any threats. And they ascend the staircase to meet Boy, right? Which is why this was established earlier. Boy is the big bad. And Fred Savage assumes that Boy is the one who would have his brother. And not incorrectly. So they, they enter Boy's lair, and uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that Boy is played here by Hank Whaley. Uh, another, another staple of 1980s and 1990s uh, sort of young adult films, uh, Frank. And Whaley. I love him. Uh, Huge fan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, career opportunities, or uh, wasn't it? Was, was it 
Career opportunities with Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, Connelly. Um, yeah. with Jennifer Connelly, an incredibly and and him eating film. the candy in in the Target aisle just that changed my life. I was like, oh my god, I want to work overnights in a department store forever. <laughs> Every yeah, that movie was was wonderful, uh, and then of course swimming with the sharks and an array of many many other things. Uh, he's he's a great actor. But he is boy. And uh, again, I, I feel like there's a story being told in both the production design and the costuming in this in this film. But the story is half told. It's incomplete. Um, both Rick Dukamen and uh, Howie Mandel's characters are punk, right? I mean, it's leather and vests and stuff that's been cut up. And, and, you know, so they, you know, are they supposed to be people from that, you know, late 70s punk scene that came in? What, right? What are they? And then we get Boy, and Boy is dressed like a private school kid, right? Tie, jacket, and, bla- you know, blazer with the the school logo like he's on he's on it, his shorts, way to a Halloween uh, ACDC show. Yeah, it's it's an again it's an interesting look. Um, it, it, the main component of him, and here we're coming back to the the sort of visually incoherent monster designs. Uh, he is very obviously a monster who has stretched human skin over yeah. itself. Um, and this is is very very strange like the skin is legitimately tied in knots behind his head it's um and it's it's, it's very obvious that everything is stretched <laughs> it's so scary it's, and gross it, it it is exceedingly gross um and not in like a cutesy way like they try to do with maurice it is just his gross. hands um his hands mm-hmm. have like the open yes, his hands wound looking rot on it just oh my god <laughs> yeah like the skin is stretched that the palms have been opened up because he grabbed something um you know he is he is a monster who has stretched human skin over himself to appear human to his playthings i imagine um so again there's there's something going on here where you know boy impersonates a human to sort of get your 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 trust in some way although i don't know how that would work because he's still disgusting and then sort of lures you in and then you know takes what he wants and then throws you away so again if you want to see that as a metaphor for pedophilia like our good friend on good google reviews you go right ahead uh or you can read it more as just the classic sort of vampiric story right the the lecherous older figure taking life taking something valuable from when i think that it would have been a more powerful metaphor if we had met this character before, for one thing. And if maybe he was hiding this quality about himself, you know, I mean, the the entire concept of a monster wearing human skin, you know, we've exploited that in, in horror and, and children's fairy tales and all kinds of media for centuries. So I wonder why the movie just didn't go there. It didn't go there with the story. It went there visually, but it didn't go there in the plot. And that's what confuses me the most. Yeah, the, I mean, Monsters is in the title. It's okay to have monstrous characters that are are dangerous and scary, but they, it seemed like, I I would suspect, and I, I there's more behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray that I intend to watch because it may answer some of these questions for me. 
but it really does feel like the filmmakers might have gone quite a bit darker. And then in the transition of this film into other hands, perhaps some choices were made to try and dull that effect, to make this a more obvious children's film where maybe it wasn't before. Because this was on the cusp of some pretty pretty big changes in children's media. So I, I can see some people objecting toward the end of the 80s to this kind of content. Yeah, but let's not forget that in in the scene where they might have pulled back from Boy being a truly monstrous figure, they then have a character who backs away from from table saw blades being shoved through the floor yeah. at their feet. Um, and you know, again, we're still in the underworld with its crazy lighting, and you know, it's it's a horror film at this point, right? Like. Uh, boy is revealed once his his skin gets you know sort of fallen off um you know his true form is revealed and he's kind of he looks kind of like a critter <laughs> actually the, yay the critter critters <laughs> um, it's it's sort of sort of of a piece uh with that and uh you know now Ducommon is is rounding up the kids and they all get thrown into this i don't know pit of Pit of Despair, which is really just full of stuffed animals, so I don't really know how Despair is uh, supposed it's the, to be. It's uh, the Star uh, Wars garbage dump scene. <laughs> that's right. It's the garbage shoot <laughs> with, with the Braggity Ann doll in it. And so they, they get uh, you know thrown away, basically, and, and they're unable to complete their mission. Uh, the brother is still in danger, but they're all fortunately okay. So... Then this next scene is the one that really is truly baffling and feels very much like a late stage edit to cover up, well, to, to cut time. Because they, Maurice is there, he's, been, he's also been beaten up. So he has gotten into a conflict with at least Snick, but maybe Boy, and, and has been rejected just like the, the kids have been. And so he's fallen out of favor and he agrees to help them. But they they then go back to the real world, right? So again, this is we we've we've been the timeline's been established, right? When the sun comes up, this is over. Like the little brother will either be a monster or they'll be trapped down there and they'll all be monsters. So they somehow have time to go all the way back up to the surface and build more crazy contraptions. So they can go back and fight Boy again, right? Because Boy has all of these defenses, which most of I thought that was kind of cool. Like the toy planes fall down and they're real and then you've got toy tanks that actually shoot and you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's, it's fine. Um, there is a clever little thing where they, I mean, it's completely implausible, but they use pencils to create a sort of lighting effect that makes... Um, Howie Mandel's character turn into clothes, which they slide under a door so that he can unlock yeah. it. Like that's clever. It's nice. You know, they've established that. So they, they now use it as a, a way to get out of their problem. Fine. All good. But the fact that they go all the way back up to the surface to build these like light rigs and then come all the way back down seems a tad implausible Yeah, and feels perhaps like they lost this fight and now they, you know, they go back up to the surface for another day and then they come back down again. I kind of wonder... You know, somewhere in the writing process that changed. I kind of wonder if it wouldn't have been more effective to have them rescue the brother and then 
decide to go back down and finish him off. To finish him off, right. Um, but as it stands, it was just like, oh, well, that time didn't go so well. Let's try again. <laughs> Let's try again. But now we're going to bring another kid, <laughs> the bully that we hate. Bring this big meatball with us. <laughs> because he's strong and he'll carry the batteries that power our incredible oh, lighting rig. You can just get a wagon, kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just poke him with a stick or something. I don't know. But so they build this elaborate lighting rig, right? That's going to play like Melts Boy and all this different stuff. And I great, awesome, very 80s thing. Kid, you know, it's it's data from Goonies, right? And, you know, pencils of power, <laughs> right? Like whatever, go to town. Fifty dollar bill. The inventiveness of fifty dollar bill. Uh, the inventiveness of eighties children can never be underestimated. But I love that they undercut the entirety of it because who walks up the stairs behind them but Maurice with a flamethrower, <laughs> just a straight up military flamethrower strapped to his back, and I'm like, where was yeah. that? Why didn't you just get that before? And then if they are susceptible to fire, just do that. Just just flamethrow yeah. them. Just just flamethrow them. All of them. And and so they, they use their lighting rig. It works. They they kind of melt boy. They turn him into clothes, and his clothes fall perfectly mm-hmm. folded, which again seems like a reference to something that we, we just don't, don't have yeah. any context for. You know, again, man, there's just there's a there's exposition being left on the table here that actually is necessary for this story to feel complete, Uh, but they just don't have it. And so Maurice comes to, I guess, save the day with his flamethrower. The kids are are on their time limit. They've got just a couple minutes left before the sun comes up. So they've got to find the brother. He's hidden in one of the like um, boy has all like these blocks with letters around him because it's very childish. And and they find him inside one of there, and Snick is is slowly reforming himself. And again, some gross little scenes, but it's okay because he gets flamethrowered, which you know, awesome, right? Uh, I will say the effect of him being on fire is so obviously like a dollar store mannequin that they just kind of pull over with string once it gets <laughs> set on fire. It's 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 pretty rough. Uh, maybe these were reshoots entirely possible that they rebuilt the ending of this movie because maybe the original was too dark. I I don't know. It doesn't necessarily feel that way, but everybody seems way too at the end of this movie. Everybody's like way too buddy, buddy. Yeah. We haven't seen most of these kids interact positively throughout this movie, save for the brothers. And, and here we are at the end of it. You know, with everybody being like, oh, awesome. We got now we're friends like this kid. I mean, the bully legitimately was going to like shove baloney in one of these kids faces at the beginning of this movie. And now he's excited that he's not going to die. Okay, all right. I guess, you know, I'll take that. But so uh, again, we get the the last confrontation of of Maurice and Snick and, and then perhaps the strangest element of an already very strange movie because when they get back to the surface it's too late the sun has already come up they can no longer come up through the bed so their plan is to outrun the sun this takes too long (laughs) this is 
so strange. And again, feels as if there is something else about this universe that we should know. Like it, because Maurice, because so are are we meant to believe that this little area that we've been introduced to is just the area underneath Greater Boston? Is that is that the region that we're in here? Uh, because when we first come down into the place, there's a sign that says Los Angeles that way. Yeah, it's like all of these Implying interconnected underbeds all over. Exactly. But <laughs> and and you can go to all of them at any time if you need to. And it just feels so strange that they're quite legitimately just sprinting. You know, you would think you'd just have a character be like, oh, yeah, L.A., it's, you know, hang a left, you know, or whatever. And, and you just go there. But so they have to run. They keep trying all these places. You know, there's never an open one until they finally get <laughs> to a hobo's cot <sighs> on the beach in Malibu, California. And... Uh, I, I love the shot because it's forced perspective. They they are obviously like on a platform up above the beach, but they shoot it to make it look like it's even with the beach, but they've got it high enough that the kids can climb out of it. And and so these kids are, they, they come out quite literally on a beach in California. And it's ridiculous and silly and poses all kinds of problems at the end of the film. But we also get right before the end, the scene that is supposed to convince us that this incredible friendship has been forged between Brian and Maurice over the course of these experiences. And, you know, tears are shed. I don't understand. Uh, Maurice, <laughs> Maurice, seemingly admits that that he cares about brian and brian of course says you know you were a friend when i didn't have one one of the best friends i've ever had this is such a scene missing um, moment where i'm like where did they become friends yeah and i mean I, i'm fine if you want to you want to gather some emotion for this scene totally um this this is fairly momentous but again i'll as we were watching, my my kids were like, "Why, why, why can't they see each other yeah. again? What would stop that? Boy's gone, Snick's gone. Just come see me tomorrow, and we'll hang out some more." I, I think again, we're supposed to believe that Brian can't interact with this world anymore without risking becoming one of them. But I can't believe there would be harm in Maurice visiting him, coming up into his bedroom and just hanging out for a while. You know, it's not like they'd have to go down into the the little monster land and go yeah. pranking. Um, so I, I don't understand why this isn't just a, or why it's not just a hangout in Malibu for a day. I'll come get you at the hobo cot tonight, and we'll head back home when we've got time, right? Like why? Like there's there's a lot of stuff here that if there are reasons why these things can't happen, we have not been told them, and and we're just supposed to, you know, in the vein of quite frankly an '80s children's film, just be like, well, that's the way it's got to be. Uh, it's not a bad scene, 
this one feels like a reshoot to me because it is literally just Howie Mandel and Fred Savage yeah. in a black room with some kind of spark effect running in the background. It's it's very, very simple. Would have been shot very, very cheaply. It, it's just, it's it's strange. Maybe not. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it reeks of a, we need to patch something in this story because we don't yeah. have it. Somebody watched a cut of this so film he, and was like, know. that's not it. <laughs> that is definitely not it. <laughs> yeah, no, that ain't it, boys. Um, so he hands Fred Savage the jacket, uh, which in the behind the scenes stuff I did watch, Howie Mandel still has that vest. Mm-hmm. They let him keep it and he still has it, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. But... Um, and then we get a talking head song. What the? <laughs> why? Just when that song started, <laughs> just, I think that's where I just mentally <laughs> fell apart. I was like, what? what is this movie? What? Wait, it, what? Yeah, it's... Mm. It's human music. It is human music. Uh, this is a song that would potentially go over the credits of a film. Let's use it. And so they, they run to the beach to have fun in California and immediately the questions begin to surface. How are they going to get home? What will they do for food? Uh, no one can come for them anytime soon. And so we finally flash back to the parents, which is something I, I honestly expected, even as a kid when I watched this, that they would do more frequently. Like, where are the scenes of the parents freaking the F out because their kids are gone? And not just the Savage Boys. Like, there are other two missing children in the movie. (laughs) There are are tons of missing children from this Boston suburb, and nobody is going to wake up the next morning and think it's weird. That is a consistent theme. And in in 1980s kids' live-action films, is that the latchkey kid was strong. Um, mm-hmm. The Goonies is maybe one of the only times that you see the, the parental is, freakouts. Yeah. Right. At yeah. the end. Right. Well, and, and really um, a couple of the, you know, the mom being like, you know, what's going on, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's 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 just a very strange ending because it's meant to be triumphant and euphoric and instead it poses more difficult questions yeah. than 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 it should and it it causes more problems and as a result it it kind of refuses to be satisfying right because we don't get real closure with maurice we get some emotional closure maybe but what's going to i mean is has there been like a radical shakeup in the makeup of the monster world? Do they have to go and prank anymore? Was that all boy causing this mayhem? Or is this just something they're going to continue doing as a matter of course? Like all of these questions that we could potentially be answering or feel good about, we get yeah. robbed. Um, and, you know, as as a kid, as a young kid who would have watched movies like this, I like to think that, you know, because I, I don't hate this movie and I certainly have you know, decently fond memories of watching it, mostly because of Howie Mandel's performance as Maurice, which was at the time, you know, something that appealed to me. 
but even as a kid, you know, this was not one of my go-to watch it all the times, right? It wasn't a Goonies. It wasn't even a Monster yeah. Squad, right? Because it didn't have a lot of that closure. And as a result, you know, it's it's sort of that unspooling effect, right? Once you start pulling the string on the sweater that's sticking out, the re- the whole thing comes unraveled, right? And you start going like, oh... But that, oh, what about that? And what about that? And and the whole movie kind of falls apart. And and so, you know, I think this is a very interesting film because Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio would go on to what in Hollywood terms would be considered colossal success as writers. Uh, I mean, they have had some of the most successful projects in in the last 30 years that they've written or or contributed story elements on. And it really does feel like the two of them sort of working things out, right? Like what is working and what's not. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Little Monsters just doesn't work. It's not terrible. It's competently made, but it has massive swings in tone, massive swings in quality, just raw visual quality for what you're looking at on screen. Um, the the underworld monster area, as as imaginative as it purports to be, is very bland, um, and and feels like a dark Freddy Krueger dream. Hallway, and it's mostly because we right more we so don't than have that location fleshed out for us in the story. I think the location could have been right. fine styled the way that it was if we had known a little bit more about it. Yeah, just anything about the mechanics of this world. Um, you know, if anything, that's, you know, I, I mentioned already that, you know, Monsters Incorporated sort of revisits this idea with its very own, very, you know, a very different take on it. But one of the things that Monsters Incorporated does brilliantly is that it clearly, cleanly, and evenly establishes all of the mechanics of that world in one scene. And that is the scare floor scene. You know absolutely everything about that world in a less than two minute sequence, right? They scare for energy. The kids aren't hurt. The monsters generally aren't all that scary outside of their jobs, right? Like all of those pieces of the work and of the world that you need to know are explained. Um, They don't waste a ton of time on it. and, And this feels the same. Like it, the, the scene where Maurice lays out, we have fun, it's what we do, we're monsters, we prank. That scene should have been rewritten, not to focus on the experience of being a monster, but the mechanics yeah. of being a monster. Like, what? how does it work, right? Uh, and if not him and there, then you go down into the underworld and you meet an elder monster, right? Maybe that's how you introduce Snick. Instead of him being this violent jerk from the beginning, you have a scene where he's going around and, and being authoritative and, and delivering some of that exposition. I mean, Ducommon's more than capable of, of doing that for you. But uh, I guess we'll, let's you know, go ahead and transition into our, our last little, little segment here. But uh, you know, and that's why my one thing for this film is needed exposition mm-hmm. dumps. At least two quality solid exposition dumps one about what it is to be a monster 
and how it functions and how it works and how you become one, right? Even if you don't want to flesh that out completely, at least hint at it, at how it happens, right? Like obviously being drawn into that world, spending time there, but is there a moment of choice where you have to decide? Like if he had pranked the baby, would it have actually happened? <laughs> right. Was that the breaking point? Is that why they, why they were all yeah. there? Was to watch the creation of a new monster, right? Because a lot of that scene doesn't make a lot, sense. I think I think some right? of the the monster behavior, if they would have watched something like the labyrinth and looked at how the goblins behaved, mm-hmm. that would have made a yeah. lot more sense. Yeah, that's a good a good reference point. Yeah, it's just we need an exposition scene for that, and then we needed some kind of exposition about yeah. boy, who boy was. What boy's attempting to do? Is boy the leader or is he just a, a monster who's feared in this place? You know, he has acolytes like Snick and some of the other monsters we see in the last, you know, sort of sequence. But what is his power? Where does so who from? is he? Right. Why do they fear him? I mean, he's not any, he's not especially more monstrous than some of the other ones. He's grosser, but does that give him some ability? You know, he, he almost seems administrative in his, his approach. So what's going on there? And again, maybe those elements were there in the script and then either they were lost because the director didn't see them as being important or a studio executive looked at those scenes and said, you know, this is taking us away from, you know, the fun Goonies adventure that we're on now. You know, that's where the money is, kid. You know, that kind of stuff. But this film, more than anything, feels like yeah. it needs it because the questions that it raises, it, it does not answer. And as a result, if this truly is supposed to be a family film, something palatable for the masses, it's not going to satisfy. It just won't. So that's my one thing. Uh, that's that's kind of where I was at after my rewatch. But for me, for me my one thing, I got a little bit more specific because for me, it like it, this needs at least 15 to 20 extra minutes just to get... In order to tell the story that I feel like they were trying to tell, we need a lot of mm. time added, which, you know, I know that wasn't always possible, especially with you know, children's media. We like them to be short. But I would specifically, I would take it a little bit further, and I would like to see the opening of this film. You know, we, we don't get the monsters for so long. I would love to see a kind of mm-hmm. dual exposition where we get you know, Brian and his family. And then we have this concern of monsters and where they come from. And as we're learning more about, you know, the relationship between his parents and how he's doing at school and, you know, all of these things that would, that build that character, we would also get a simultaneous character development with Maurice in the underworld with the monsters. And maybe we Mm -hmm. could sort of draw some kind of connection between those two characters and then it would make sense when they become friends right maybe you know maurice got the the brian assignment and he's doing his research and yeah trying to figure out how to prank them best or something yeah i mean i you either need that scene which i really like that idea of having them sort of dual build or you need do you need the library microfish yeah. scene where Brian goes in there and asks the librarian, do you have anything about monsters under the bed? He's like, oh, well, monsters under the bed. <laughs> you need your, you need your Skype call you know? with uh, Vincent like, D'Onofrio. <laughs> right. You got a, you got a bagul problem. Um, yeah. Like it, it just feels like it needs, it needs more of that very basic mechanical 
component, right? You've got a, a, enough emotion to propel your film. You've got the strong brother relationship to drive your end, your end act and what you're trying to do. Um, even though the fact that Ben Savage remains sleepy through that entire experience is highly yeah. implausible. <laughs> like every time they see him, he's waking up and like, where am I? <laughs> and he's like, gets a lawn, gets a lawn dart thrown at his head. Brian? Sees a scary monster. <laughs> Is that you, Brian? It's just like, okay, kid. What you, okay, you're awake now. All right. <laughs> he just keeps you're, passing out. Like, unless there's some kind of sleep spell on you. Like you're you're no longer sleepy. Um so like this is one of those movies that feels like that little building block piece and honestly if you go back if you look forward at the career of these two writers those are the pieces that they start to figure out the the pieces of the story that need to be present right the the little bit of backstory the little bit of this um you know pirates is a pretty good example right like you know everything you need to know about will turner Pretty much within the first ten minutes. Yeah, I mean, he's not a complicated right. character. He's got all your exposition. He's not complicated. He's not complicated. Uh, Jack Sparrow's a bit more mysterious, but again, you get the basics of who that character is with his introduction scene. You know, his boat sinking into the harbor and him stepping right off and then stealing the guy's money. Right. You know everything you need to know about that character in that moment, and that's what good exposition should be. And that's what this movie doesn't have. Right. Again, it feels like a story half told. It feels like somebody in the production department with costuming was saying, here's this character. Somebody in the, the design co you know, was saying, like, here's this character when they were putting their makeup together. The screenwriters had an idea of who these characters were. And then the director had an idea of who these characters were. And it doesn't feel like any of those visions particularly yeah. aligned. It was just everybody kind of doing their own thing. Um and and that I feel is is one of the major flaws of a lot of movies that were put together in the eighties, right? They were built on an idea, and then nobody really executed together, right? It was just a lot of different units all working in conjunction, and it, it doesn't feel like anybody had a bad time, right? It doesn't feel like this movie was a disaster, right? It's not that. It's just the pieces necessary to turn this into a complete film yeah. are not here. And, and it's pretty obvious. But, so I guess the, the real question is, do we recommend Little Monsters? Is it a failure piece or is it a piece of something else? I... What do you think? I kind of do recommend this movie. Um, and I was on the fence. I, I watched this relatively early in the week and couldn't, couldn't quite make up my mind. But I think I do recommend it. Because I really do like Fred Savage, and I really do like Howie Mandel. This is not his strongest appearance, but it's no. it's important in knowing where he came from as a comedian and sort of understanding some of the comparisons that he's had thrown in his career, like the the Robin Williams bit. Because that, I mean, I've seen that before. Mm -hmm. I've, I've heard that before. He, they get compared a lot. Um. They were very much of a piece yeah. in the 1980s. Uh, Howie Mandel was was a little bit, <clears throat> I, as difficult as it may be to understand, uh, Howie Mandel was seen as a bit more unhinged, yeah. right? And Robin Williams could be exceedingly unhinged. But with Williams, you could always see the puppet master pulling the strings. He knew exactly what he was doing, 
There was a bit more nuance. And he had been at it longer. I mean, he had just been in the comedy game for much longer. So his his style was really evolved. So, you know, if... In the in that regard, like I feel it's a, it's a fun movie to see these actors in a situation that's maybe not as flattering as some of their other roles. I mean, like I said, Fred Savage is the highlight of the film for me. Um, I just I I was absolutely mm-hmm. blown away by how he carried a film that is in the hands of another child actor. I really don't think this would have gone as well. No, I think you put anybody else in that role, and this movie is... Uh, it never would have been released. I, I, yeah. I'll go ahead and say it. This movie would not... This would be sitting yeah. in a can somewhere on a shelf if Fred Savage was not in it. And, and also because he was exactly. a rising star. Like, it is it is difficult to understate how big Wonder yeah. Years was. Like, my God everybody watched that show and and savage's popularity was was in by 1989 when this would have come out i mean it made almost a million dollars in 100 theaters like that that means a lot of people went to see it in those 100 theaters even if it wasn't like super successful so you know savage was was a bankable name at this very in this very brief window of time and so was mandel so i mean you put those two people on the poster you're going to get some interest, but if if anybody else was in in the front of this movie, nah, we yeah. we would have never seen it. It just wouldn't have been released, um, or if it was, it would have gone direct to video and been forgotten on a shelf somewhere. So I do I do recommend it. I think I also think it's important if you're if you're interested in you know films in the 1980s, especially young adult media in the 1980s, and sort of those mm-hmm. awkward growing pains of figuring out what appeals to the middle school crowd. Um, cause we didn't really know, I think. Yeah. Um, no, there was no dependable formula yeah. at this stage. People were attempting to develop it, but there, there was no Harry Potter yet. Totally solid. Yeah, no, no, it, there was no, I mean, the young adult, the, the young adult book market was the outsiders, <laughs> right? I mean, like, um, you know, nothing, nothing to this point, but the eighties is where people started pushing against it to try and find it. Right. We get flight of the navigator, which the never the ending story. Um, <laughs> a never ending story. I mean, like, you know, if you really look at that, I mean, navigators, 86, never ending stories, 84 labyrinth is like 86. Um, you know, we can't really forget that this, the wizard came out later in the year, which is crazy. Released. Right, so again, doesn't feel like those two yeah, movies can like exist the, in the same time space. No, and and Wizard blew up. I mean, huge. But I mean, you know, we get the short circuit movies. I guess. I mean, obviously, Joe Dante's doing his thing at this point. You know, we've talked a little bit about Explorers before Gremlins, obviously, um, which this movie certainly shares some some common DNA with Gremlins. But it's just, I, I think, what we're really talking about is that all of these like kids movies that have stood the test of time right because this is also the year that honey i shrunk the kids also crazy which is also just crazy to think about is that all of these films these ones that have really hung around were directed by really really good directors that's really it like directors who are 
who before they ever took these projects on were masters of tone and masters of scene and and dialogue and character and i think what we're really seeing in this film is an inexperienced director who couldn't guide the entirety of the project right he couldn't hold it together as as a director is that's really what the director's job is, right? It's not their job to make the entire movie themselves, unless you change camera, <laughs> then you make the whole movie yourself. But it's their job to collect all of these different ideas and visions from these various departments and unite them in a single you know, vision, right? A single output. And I don't think he was capable of doing that. I think he had great ideas. I think he had good execution for the money that they had to work with. Again, some of the family stuff. I, I, I think if this had been a smaller family drama without all this wild stuff, it would have been really good. But he just couldn't hold this yeah. world together in a in a cohesive way. And maybe the script wasn't there, right? Maybe the, the there was some of those big building blocks just weren't present for him to assemble. But I think a lot of it comes down to just yeah. inexperience, right? Give this guy a couple more movies under his belt. If Joe Dante sure. had directed this, I think it would be a, a classic. <laughs> Very much so, right? Like, I, I think it, it would be an entirely different game if Joe Dante or, <laughs> I don't want to say Wolfgang Peterson. Wolfgang Peterson never would have touched this I don't know, movie, he but, might have. Uh, you know, one of these... <laughs> Guy's done some weird I mean, stuff. <laughs> maybe. He's done some weird stuff, that's for sure. Um, but, I mean, you look at some of the scripts that Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio have produced since then, Small Soldiers in the Hands of Joe Dante. I mean, it wasn't a huge success, mm -hmm. but that's a great movie. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful movie. Um, you know, so it may have just been that inexperience. And maybe that's why he chose to never direct another movie again. Maybe it wasn't because he wasn't offered. Maybe he simply decided, you know, this isn't for me. This is not the part of the job that I'm going to be good at. Um, but I mean, if you go look at 80s kids movies, man, I mean, it's not like there aren't a lot of them. There are, but... Most of it's either Disney fair, toy tie-in fair, you know, the Transformers, the movie, which is god-awful. Uh, I mean, I, I love it because it's Transformers, and that's, I mean, it was, like, marketed directly into my veins in the 1980s, so it's like, I'm fine with it, but it's, a, it is objectively a terrible movie. Um, and then you get stuff that really probably shouldn't be considered a kid's movie, like yeah. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> Why did that's they let us watch movie. that? <laughs> like... That movie's insane. Right? I mean, same with Beetlejuice, right? Like, Beetlejuice is not a kid's movie. I tried to show it to my kids, and they were like, this is terrifying. Why is that woman we song? Were, like, it was the time. You know, it was a different time. I mean, this is the this is the era of Milo and Otis. They just <laughs> hurled puppies off of mountains to get shots, you know? It's like... Oh, no animals were harmed I, I in the making know. of this film, my ass. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Daryl. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, We're going to yeah. have to talk about Daryl at some point. I mean, the kid flies a, a SR-71 Blackbird yeah. at the end of that movie. It's, the 80s was nuts. <laughs> it was for, a good time. <laughs> entertainment. It was absolutely the Wild West. And The Little Monsters is about as Wild West as you can get. Because, man, it's out there. But uh, I will go ahead and say that I I'm going to recommend this one, too. Uh, if I'm going to give it a score, I'm going to say this is a solid C. It's a 70. 
this movie will not satisfy you. You will not leave it uplifted and excited and, hey, let's watch that again. But there's enough of a glimmer of both cool ideas, because it is a cool idea, and decent performance that I think it's worth watching, especially as an artifact of a very different time in family entertainment. When there was no formula, there was no dependable bedrock of this is what you can do to have a successful family-oriented film. And as a result, it creates something that's pretty unique in the grand scheme of things and, and worth investing a little bit of time in to see, uh, at least yeah. to just get a taste of it, right? Even if you don't finish it, even if you don't see it all the way to the end, which I would completely understand if you don't want to, it's, it's just weird enough that you might be able to grab onto it. Uh, you know, I have seen calf tattoos of Maurice, right? Like people, there are people out there who love this movie enough that they have branded their bodies with it. I'm not going to go that far. Not happening. But I can't but really judge. Like, I, I can see something. how a movie like this I, yeah, would I be can, important. I can totally see it. Yeah. I would I get Jareth totally the Goblin King tattooed you on my face. At the right time. I just, you know, oh, I, sure. I get it. Sure. I get how a movie like this could be like your movie. But I just... I think it wasn't as many people's special movie as it could have been, maybe. No, no. I, I think, you know, this movie sort of breezed in and out of existence when it came out and then fell off the face of the earth. And then, like, so many cult classics found life on home video. Right? That's where we saw it. Right? I no. didn't see this in the theater. There's no way. Um, you know, this was going down to rj's video and seeing something funny on there you know grabbing the tag off the shelf and uh and then our very technologically adept at the time father figuring out a way to, to pirated movies for our pirated movies of the 1980s yeah. like that's right heavily pirated films in, in our family household it's a victimless uh, crime that's okay that's a, like it's a victimless crime <laughs> <laughs> I've tried I, I, my my film collection is my my attempt to right the wrong of my movie pirating past in my family because believe me my I have many many shelves of movies filled to the brim so uh, but so it's it's a recommend for me so what was your uh, failure piece score Kay? Where would you I don't want to give this like a a straight middle of the road score I do feel like it needs to be dinged for. Just the tonal problems. Mm. That's where that's where I, I just lost yeah. it. I'm like, you cannot have a movie be this scary and then this fun and then this scary and then this fun. Right. It it vacillates um, very hard. Yeah. yeah it's it's with So for sure. I was sitting at like a 67. Cause I'm like, I I really this movie is charming, but it's also deeply disturbing. <laughs> Fred Savage elevates it tremendously. He really does. Like again, you put any other kid in that role. You know, like the the brainy kid from no Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? No way. Nope. Mm -mm. This movie completely falls apart. Yeah. So, no, I, I agree. It's got a charm to it. Um, it. Whether or not that charm is going to be enough to overcome its flaws for, for a listener personally, mm, I don't know. Uh, but it it's... It's got a kernel of an idea that's very strong and it's acted well enough and it's shot well enough and the story moves briskly, right? It's one of those like, all right, you know, it's not, I, I see what you're throwing down, 
right? But I, I agree, dinging it a little bit for its flaws is, is certainly not a bad idea. So what's, right. what is your score? Well, Did you say what like, your score was? Ooh. Oh, sorry, uh, yeah. I, I put it right at a 70. That was mine, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's. I had to take it down for me. just like, for I, the, the hands on boy. I just, at that point in the movie, when I saw like the, the effect oh, on yeah. his hands, I was like, no, nope. Nope, you're not getting a 70 from me anymore. That's mm -hmm. not happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's disgusting. Like it is it is a terrifying uh little slice right there in that at that point in the movie. Uh and again it feels like maybe at one point they were building to that, like mm -hmm. they were getting progressively more gross and and then they they scaled it back. I don't know if it was for a rating. I mean, this did catch a PG in 89, which pretty typical for family film but you know hard to say if uh pushing it to a like a more pg-13 level and really leaning into it would have helped uh i think it probably would have benefited more given the rest of the tone of the film and especially the performance by mandel and what he's trying to do with maurice it would have been better to scale back right this should have been more uh, i've been trying to think of a of a kids movie analog where you know you've got that threat like it's a dangerous place but everybody's still kind of having a good time and and i can't really put my finger on a, another direct analog to this but i think that that would have done a tremendous amount for the film right where yes there's a bit of threat but it's very minimal and it's very backgrounded and and you know it's again it feels like somebody watched et and and was like the the house being covered in plastic scene and was like well that's terrifying we'll just lean into that and then went way too far <laughs> like, <laughs> to somebody say the was least. like oh we'll just we'll just have boy have skin wrapped Blah. around his head that'll be good right <laughs> but some some special effects guy had a fantastic demo reel <laughs> after that movie to be like do you want to be grossed out? That man was brought on to so many body horror films after that, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it feels a bit Cronenberg. Yeah. Right? It feels a bit The Fly. It's, it's, I was getting fly flashbacks. It, it's intriguing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. especially once he gets to the point where he just starts, like, falling apart <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Like, that was, that was definitely the, uh, the thing. Oh, I did, I did see... I did see one interesting thing, right? So in the home video release, the the UK release, they didn't use the Talking Heads song. I saw this on IMDb trivia and I did want to mention it and I completely forgot when we talked what about it. What other song. song could feel appropriate? They used Queen's what? Fat Fat Bottom Girls. Yes. That was the in the UK version of this film. That was the song that played over the title or over the the credits. Uh, I know, uh, right? I have a lot of feelings about that that I don't like. Like, who in the world thought that that was a good choice? Oh. Um, so again, that's that's what we're dealing with here. That's that's the the film in a nutshell is. Somebody thought it would be a good idea at some point <laughs> to put fat bottom girls in I the credits of this movie. I just, that's that's the worst. <laughs> I'm really glad Isn't that that though? version is not on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that that was that was really something. Uh, that uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, 
so I, I did also want to mention that uh, the you know we mentioned the the effects and the makeup being very effective. So I, I did actually look up the one of the primary makeup artists, right? Which there are, there are a bunch. It's it's really hard to say who would have been responsible for what. But I I did want to share a couple of things because as we were talking about it, I talked about a few things, but. So I mentioned that boy looked a lot like a critter, right? So one of the makeup department credits on here, and there are several, is a guy named Derek DeVoe. But Derek DeVoe is actually a guy named Robert Short, and he had a whole crew of people that would work with him. And Derek DeVoe did the creature work for Critters too. Makes sense. He also did the creature effects for Deep Star Six. <laughs> Oh. Another film that has some really gross yeah. effects in it. Yeah. Really gross. Like, there is some stuff in Deep Star Six, not unlike Leviathan, which came out, it was of a piece, right? Um, so I, I really think that he's probably the one responsible for that. And he has not worked in a very long time. Like he worked through the early nineties and then that's it huh. done. Um, you know, I think one of his last credits was on uh, the return of swamp thing, <laughs> that show which was in like 89. So, so he kind of fell off the face of the planet, but he had a very particular style. And I, I think that was mostly him. One of the other credited makeup guys, dude named Mark Burnett, and he's continued to work a lot of TV stuff. He's, he works with the Asylum guys doing like the Sharknado movies and stuff. So maybe. But I really think that it was the the Derek DeVoe that probably He did at least did that, that creature effect for sure. I'm I'm betting, right? Because it's just... <laughs> That's spot on. <laughs> it definitely hangs with some of that stuff. Yeah. So anyway, just a, a little bit of interesting things there, especially since it came up in our, our discussion there at the end, but... So, um, it's a, a double recommend on Little Monsters. Uh, maybe it is a failure piece, a, mi a lesser one, a minor failure piece, but it is definitely not a piece of something else. Uh, not like Tom Cruise's The yeah. um, which is most definitely a piece of something. Uh, but, so, it is available on Netflix, and you can find uh, a Blu-ray copy of it relatively easy, uh, given that the Vestron home video has uh, Vestron Home Video name has been brought back and they've been sort of steadily releasing movies for the last few years, um, including they, they re-released Warlock not too long ago, which uh, exciting, right? Remember the Warlock, the Wishmaster oh, series? Boy. Yes, very much so. Beyond Reanimator, Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, that one, <laughs> you know. But Stephen King's only directorial coke-fueled crazy town truck movie. That would be a good one. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's kind of cool that, you know, there is this this brand out there now who's trying to bring back some of these, like, 80s minor... Uh, I'm not going to call it a classic, but these 80 mi 80s minor films that have kind of been forgotten. Yeah. Where's my Blu-ray of FX? That's what I want. I want my <laughs> FX and FX2 combo yes. Blu-ray. Bring it to me. Give it time. It's got to happen. They're going to run out of other stuff to it's release. It's got to happen. Eventually. But we'll see. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening. And we will definitely see you next week. Uh, so where can you be found on social media? Kathy? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Nice. Uh, I can be found at T Baskin. And of course, you can get us at FPS Theater. And you can email if you want to get a hold of us that way at failurepeace at gmail.com. And as always, hang in there. Things will get better eventually. <laughs> Maybe. And if I not, think. we can all just become little monsters. That's right. We'll just crawl under our beds and hope that something cool happens. But in any case, have a great week. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.